fee refund advance offered to eligible clients. Application required. Loans by Republic Bank. Details at jacksonhewitt.com. AP News. I'm Ed Donahue. A Justice Department report cites numerous failures by law enforcement in response to the deadly mass shooting two years ago at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. Kimberly Mata Rubio's daughter was one of the 19 elementary school students killed. I hope that the failures end today and that local officials do what wasn't done that day. Do right by the victims and survivors of Robb Elementary, terminations, criminal prosecutions. Attorney General Merrick Garland says children waited desperately for over an hour before officers stormed a classroom to take the gunman down. Injured and scared students and teachers remain trapped with the subject in the classrooms waiting to be rescued. Survivors later shared that they heard officers gathered outside the classrooms. While they waited. Local officials in Texas are still weighing whether to bring charges. The report includes a slew of recommendations designed to prevent similar failures in the future. President Biden is acknowledging the American and British bombardment has yet to stop attacks by Houthi rebels on vessels in the Red Sea. Deputy Pentagon Press Secretary Sabrina Singh says there was more activity. This morning, U.S. Central Command forces conducted strikes on two Houthi anti-ship missiles that were aimed into the southern Red Sea. Also last night, the U.S. US Central Command conducted strikes on 14 Houthi missiles at over a dozen locations. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says he told the U.S. he opposes the establishment of a Palestinian state as part of any post-war scenario in Gaza. More than half a million home design incorporated beds sold at retailers like Walmart and Wayfair are being recalled because they can break, sag or collapse during use which has resulted in dozens of injuries. This is AP News. There is good news for homebuyers when it comes to their loans. It's still much higher than it was two years ago, but the average long-term mortgage rate fell this week to its lowest level since May. Mortgage buyer Freddie Mac said the average rate on a 30-year mortgage dropped to 6.6% from 6.66 last week. Two years ago, that rate was just over 3.5%. Home loan borrowing costs have been mostly coming down since late October. That's after the average rate surged to 7.79%, the highest level since late 2000. I'm Shelley Adler. The Nevada Supreme Court won't consider former Dances with Wolves actor Nathan Chasinghorse's request to dismiss a sprawling indictment that accuses him of leading a cult, taking underage wives, and sexually abusing indigenous women and girls. Prosecutors in Las Vegas can proceed with their 18-count criminal case. I'm Ed Donahue, AP News. This is 820 AM, WCPT Willow Springs, and streaming worldwide at WCPT820.com. We are Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. Now, your WCPT820 weather update. From the Weatherology Weather Center, I'm meteorologist Jennifer Wojcicki. A winter weather advisory will go into effect here later this evening. We'll see a few scattered snow showers possible late this afternoon with cloudy skies and a high into the mid-20s. Winds out of the northeast around 5 to 10 miles per hour. For tonight, a good chance for snow, 2 to 4 inches possible, cloudy alone near 11. By Friday, a slight chance for snow showers, areas of blowing snow likely cloudy, high of 15 degrees. That's your latest Chicago weather update. 
Currently, it's 27. Remember when you get to work to hop over to WCPT820.com or the TuneIn Radio app and stream The Stephanie Miller Show weekdays 8 to 11 a.m. on Chicago's Progressive Talk, where facts matter. You're listening to WCPT820, because facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, thank you for joining me this Thursday, January 18th. I hope you are having a wonderful, wonderful day. Uh, You know, it's uh, not so cold anymore. I'm pretty sure we broke double digits today. Oh, my God, it's 23 out. Let's get our bathing suits, kids. Um, However, um, I don't want to speak too soon. There is some snow in the forecast. Actually, the weather is part of the reason why in Congress today they are scurrying. They are hustling. They are moving quickly. To try to vote. No, don't get excited. They're not voting on a new budget. Uh, they're voting on a proposal uh, to extend the current budget just a little bit longer. Just a little bit longer. You know, 20% of the government is set to uh, shut down tomorrow. You might think that's why they were scurrying. <laughs> no, silly gooses. They're scurrying because the weather in Washington is supposed to be really bad tomorrow. And they're off next week, so they all want to go home tonight. You foolish folks. You thought it had something to do with governing. Ha! You would be mistaken on that. So uh, sometime this afternoon, Congress is set to vote on another stopgap bill to get us up to the next crisis. Chuck Schumer was talking in the Senate today about this whole mess and, a, you know, a potential government shutdown and um, everything that is uh, going on in Congress, et cetera, and so forth. He, um, as always, made a lot of really good points. I want to share with you what he said right now. Listen to this. What the Senate cannot do right now is mimic the House in, in its chaos, where a vocal minority of hard-right rabble-rousers want to bully their way into making a shutdown happen. Only in the twisted logic of MAGA extremism is it a disaster to extend funding? That's what they said. It would be a disaster to extend funding. They want a shutdown. And what will happen if they get it? VA offices close. Food inspectors don't leave the jobs. Nutrition to children is cut. All of these programs are at risk if the government shuts down. But to the hard right, a shutdown is precisely the point. They want to create pain and chaos for the American people in order to bully their way into getting what they want. But now, even many Republicans, I've been really heartened in the last few days to see that a good number of the more mainstream Republicans are rejecting the hard right and doing it publicly. That's a very good sign for this and for the future. The Republican majority can't get anything done over in the House Because the hard right keeps sabotaging things on the floor, even their own appropriation bills. But 
the majority of the House or many House Republicans are just sick of that bullying as well, and they know how bad it is for their own party and for the country. If the majority of senators and representatives continue working in good faith, we're going to keep the government open. We're going to continue on the appropriations process. So I urge my colleagues once again, let's work together, bipartisan, both houses, pass the CR quickly, avoid a shutdown, and the pain that a shutdown would entail. So, um, like I said, there is a vote expected in the House this afternoon, not because of any urgency, because of a government shutdown, but because it is expected to be bad weather in Washington tomorrow. And they're off the week after that. So God forbid they should be stuck in Washington, D.C. Let's just get this vote done. Get on a plane and go home. Your tax dollars at work. Not only are the far right Republicans in the House of Representatives determined um, to be, shall we say, very difficult when it comes to passing a new budget. They are also planning to be very difficult when it comes to any kind of immigration reform. The Democrats agree that immigration reform is necessary. They're ready to talk about it. They're ready to compromise. But um, the belief among a lot of people is that Republicans have decided that this is a great talking point for them in the 2024 elections. So they don't want to work in a bipartisan way to come up with any kind of immigration reform, because then it will look like the problem, if not being fixed, is at least on its way to being fixed or being fixed a little better than it is right now. And... That's no good. You can't stand up and and bang your pots and pans and say the Democrats aren't doing anything on immigration if indeed you pass a bill. So I think that that seems to be the attitude. That seems to be the attitude from a number of Republicans right now. They don't want to pass anything that requires Democratic votes because they consider that giving Joe Biden a win. I know. They've got only like two or three votes to spare for their majority right now in the House. But um, God forbid they should vote anything on a bipartisan basis. I say... I'm sorry. I'm just, you know, I know we're Democrats and we're progressives and we want to get things done and we want to use government to make the world a better place. And it is so frustrating when you have a body of people who care nothing about any issue. They don't care anything about people. How many Republican governors have have announced that they're refusing to take um, this this extra federal money for food programs for children. Republican governors right and left are refusing to accept this money. Is that because they want kids to go hungry in their states? Well, they may not want kids to go hungry, but they really, really, really don't want people to see government working for them. 
especially not a government led by a Democrat. So you don't you see you have to oppose these. Yes. okay, there'll be a few thousand kids in our state that will go hungry. But the bigger picture is here. We'll make Joe Biden look bad if we refuse this and we'll make him look good if we accept it. So you know what, kids? You have to sacrifice. You have to sacrifice so we can make political points. You know, um, there was um, in Iowa, reporters were trying to do these polls, these surveys. And time after time, they found that um, Republicans who supported Nikki Haley, at least half of them said that if it was a Trump Biden contest, if Nikki Haley didn't make it, they were going to vote for Biden. You know what? It can't happen soon enough. Oh, let's see. How, how many days? How many days do we have left? 291 days until the presidential election. 291 days till the presidential election. And you know what? It can't come soon enough. Because I certainly hope Biden just wipes the floor with Trump yet again. Kamala Harris, our vice president, was on The View, that uh, panel talk show that is on mornings or afternoons, depending upon where you live. And um, she was talking about a Biden versus Trump contest. I thought what she had to say was pretty interesting. Uh, Some of it got kind of uh, some attention because a former Trump White House spokesperson a Kaylee McEnany, McElhinney, McElear, you know, the blonde one with the big blue eyes. She went on Fox and said she thought Kamala did a great interview. What? Huh? Excuse me? Yep, she thought Kamala was great. Well, I didn't hear the whole interview, but what little I heard sure, sure sounded good. Is she, again, Kamala Harris, in part, was talking about the a Biden versus Trump matchup. Uh, listen to what she had to say. It's going to be the choice between what is about respecting our democracy, what is about competence versus chaos, versus someone who has called those who would attack our capital and try and undo the votes of millions of Americans in a presidential race and would dare to call those people who, can, who committed acts of violence patriots. Someone, again, who would weaponize the Department of Justice, who glorifies those people who are running countries in a way that is about themselves and not the people. This is going to be the split screen. And I do believe that the American people are going to vote in favor of what is in the best interest of the future of our country, and in particular, our children. Amen to that. Well said, Kamala Harris. We're going to take a break. We're going to be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. WCPT 820. The uh, Department of Justice released a report today where they analyzed what happened in Uvalde, Texas. And they analyzed, as Merrick Garland said, sometimes minute to minute, sometimes second to second exactly how events played out, exactly how law enforcement responded. Um, The report talks about failure after failure, 
part of the reason why police didn't storm in and try to save those who were bleeding out and uh, take down the shooter is because someone in a position of authority changed it from an um, called it instead of an active shooter situation, uh, that it was then a hostage situation. They felt the shooting was over, so now it was just time to try to negotiate. And um, basically Merrick Garland said that was a huge error in judgment. You know, we've we've got enough of these mass shooting events under our belt now to know that basically cops have to get in there as quickly as humanly possible. There are families who were told later that it took their children a while to bleed to death while the law enforcement was outside in the hallway. At one point, law enforcement was told that the door to the classroom was locked. Remember that? And so they didn't even bother to try it when indeed the door to the classroom wasn't locked and they could have gone right in. Yeah, that's one of the men, one of the mentions in the report. Police officers spent 40 minutes searching for a key when the classroom was probably unlocked the entire time. Nobody in the police simply tried to reach out to the knob and turn it. Um, Merrick Garland summed it up this way, that the law enforcement response was a failure. Failed leadership, failed training, failed policies. Led to 33 students and three of their teachers trapped in a room with an active shooter for over an hour as law enforcement stood outside. It is... It is just unfathomable. Kids and teachers inside the classroom were calling 911, begging for somebody to come in and save them. And nobody came. There was no urgency. Um, Merrick Garland, well, he gave a lengthy news conference on this report today, I'm not going to share the whole thing with you, but I, I, if you have any interest, I would suggest you go to C-SPAN and listen to the whole thing. But it's not easy. Revisiting this whole situation is not easy. Remember, this shooter was using high-grade ammo. More than one of the kids had to be identified by dental records and DNA because there wasn't enough left of their face for family members to recognize. Listen to what Merrick Garland said earlier today. The massacre at Robb Elementary shattered families throughout this community and devastated our, our country. 19 children and two teachers were killed. And untold numbers of students, teachers, and law enforcement officers were injured. The law enforcement response to the mass shooting at Robb Elementary was a failure. 
As the threat posed to our country by mass shootings has grown and evolved over the past several decades, law enforcement's response tactics have also changed. The massacre at Columbine High School 25 years ago and the 47 minutes it took for law enforcement to enter that high school marked a major shift in how law enforcement leaders think about responding to mass shootings. It is now widely understood by law enforcement agencies across the country that in active shooter incidents, time is not on the side of law enforcement. Every second counts. And the priority of law enforcement must be to immediately enter the room and stop the shooter with whatever weapons and tools officers have with them. That is the approach responding officers first employed when they arrived at Robb Elementary School. But within minutes of arriving inside the school, officials on scene transitioned from treating the scene as an active shooter situation to treating the shooter as a barricaded subject. This was the most significant failure. That failure meant that law enforcement officials prioritized the protracted evacuation of students and teachers in other classrooms instead of immediately rescuing the victims trapped with the active shooter. It meant that officials spent time trying to negotiate with the subject instead of entering the room and confronting him. <sighs> you know, it would be tragic enough if we looked back and uh, acknowledge that we've made huge changes and nothing like that's ever going to happen again. But um, you know it will. You absolutely know it will because we cannot seem um, to get Republicans to agree to an assault weapons ban. We've had them on the books before. We had an assault weapons ban on the books uh, for 10 years. And guess what? We didn't have the number of mass shooting deaths <laughs> that we have now. So the report comes out and we revisit that. Um, maybe law enforcement will learn some lessons. And, um, you know, it's not like this is, you know, a law enforcement in Chicago or New York or um, Los Angeles need to prepare. No, it's it's law enforcement in places like Peoria, you know, Enid, Oklahoma. I mean, Uvalde, Texas, was not a major metropolis. It can happen anywhere, and nowhere in this country is safe. And it won't be until we pass some serious gun legislation. You know, you desperately can't live your life without shooting an AK-47. Restrict them to gun clubs. They never leave the property. You desperately need to do that. Put them in a place where you where people can't grab it it's not not in your garage that is not a safe place just in case you are curious not in your garage it's got to be 
If those weapons cannot be banned because they're made to kill people, that is their only purpose. They're not there for hunting. They're they're not sporting competitions to see who can shoot their AK-47 the best. No. This is a military weapon designed to kill as many people as possible as quickly as possible, and that's what it does. We've seen it. That's what it does. So if if we cannot ban them outright and get rid of them, at the very least, we have to make sure they are only under lock and key and with people who are exceedingly responsible. Okay, let's let's move on. Let's move on, shall we, to something almost silly. Oh, my God, did you hear? Um, you know, Bali's casino, they're going to have to move their hotel. They're still going over to Freedom Plaza, that place over off Chicago where the Tribune printing plant is or was. I don't know if they've moved it yet. Um, but, yeah, um, apparently their pipes were going to mess up something to do with the, with the river, which the, this site is right on the Chicago River. So there's some big news for you today. <laughs> Frankly, it hurts too much to talk sometimes about this other stuff. You know what I mean? You just want to think about something else. I cannot imagine living through it. Just talking about it is enough to um, derail me. Um. Another issue that we're going to be talking about with an expert uh, coming up in the next segment is the unhoused, especially in the Chicago area. As you well know, we have had some ridiculously bad weather, ridiculously bad weather and horrible, horrible temperatures. Um, Yeah, this week it does look a little better. Okay, well, Friday the high temperature is 13, so that's not exactly great. Um, But next week we should be in the 30s. But we have a sizable unhoused population. Can you imagine being in a thin tent in negative 10-degree weather? Coming up, we're going to be talking to Doug Schenkelberg, who's the executive director at the Chicago Coalition for the Homeless. And we are going to talk about what is being done to get those who are unhoused through the worst of um, of what this winter is offering us. We are going to take a break. We are going to be back with Doug and much more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. A WCPT 820. Oh, well, you just heard uh, Jennifer Fuchitsky say that uh, temperatures are expected to be 15 tomorrow. It is supposed to be cold and snowy tonight. Uh, hopefully next week we'll see a little bit of a break, but it is it is still bad. Doug Schinkelberg is the executive director at the Chicago Coalition for the Homeless and is here to talk about how his organization and other organizations are trying to help unhoused people get through this terrible weather. Doug, thank you. Thank you for joining us again. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for having me. 
Doug, first of all, start with the scope of the problem. How many people are we talking about? So there's a couple different ways that homelessness is measured. Uh, we do an estimate of the Chicago Coalition of the Homeless that looks at uh, census data and administrative data that uh, adds up people who are experiencing homelessness on the streets and the shelter system and people who are doubled up or couch surfing. Um, when you look at that bigger picture, that's about 68,000 people um, experiencing homelessness in the city. In of what Chicago. area? What's the geographic area? That's throughout the whole city of wow. Chicago. Um, and, you know, if you look just at the shelter or folks on the street, our, our numbers show that's a little over 31,000 of that 68,000 folks. Um, and so, you know, it's a huge number. That number is there's another measure called the point in time count that's done in January that has a much more conservative uh, number of people who are out um, because of the methodology and the way that they do that type of counting. Um, but uh, either way, we're dealing with thousands of people uh, on the street and in the shelter system uh, every night in Chicago. Well, let's I want to talk more about the problem as a whole, but let's start with where we are right now, which is some of the coldest weather we've experienced in the last several winters. I mean, I can't remember when it was uh, so many degrees below zero so consistently. What do you do when that happens? So for folks uh, experiencing homelessness, uh, they do whatever they can. Um, so there's a couple different things that we see. You know, the, the city uh, always responds by expanding their network of warming centers, you know, asking uh, shelters that typically aren't open 24-7 to stay open 24-7, opening up libraries, opening up park field houses, uh, places for people to go, uh, and tries to really ramp up um, uh, the outreach uh, to folks and working closely with nonprofits who are skilled at street outreach uh, threshold to night ministry or to the uh, primary folks that do that uh, to really get them involved um, and check in on folks, um, encouraging people to use the 311 system to call and check on people. But those are the formal networks. But we also know a lot of it is also informal. Um, so if you're someone who's homeless and living on the street, you're, uh, you might have enough money scraped together for one night in a hotel when it's particularly cold or you might have a family member or a friend who typically uh, wouldn't let you stay with them, but will when weather gets really extreme. Or you might have a propane tank uh, that allows you to have a, a heater in your tent. Uh, so it's really like whatever resources they can draw on in these extreme temperatures, they do. You said that um, in extreme weather like this, you know, groups that do outreach check in on the people who they know are unhoused. Like they know, like under a certain bridge, they'll find two or three right. tents. Right. What does that mean? Check in? Like they just like say hello, or can they? You know. So, yeah. So it's you know asking people. You know, do they want to be taken to a, a warming center? Do they want to be taken to a shelter? Uh, you know, no one is forced to go somewhere, but you want to make sure that they know that that's an option and have the transportation to get there if they want that. So it's, you know, getting them to those places, uh, you know, to the extent that there's uh, additional 
gloves, hats, clothing that they can offer people to provide more warmth to that. Um, but really whatever they can do that meets the person where they're at to help get them out of harm's way. What do you do if somebody says, you know, thanks for checking on me, but I really don't want to go to a shelter? Because I know that there are some people who really don't like that. Sometimes right. I've, I've read that, you know, they feel that the shelter is too constraining. There are too many rules that they have to follow right. or they right. maybe one time they had their possessions stolen by somebody so they don't ever want to go back. There can be a number of reasons why they don't want to go to the shelter, but when it's like negative seven with a thirty negative thirty wind chill, it almost seems like malpractice to leave them out on the street. Yeah, it's you know, and you know, I don't want to you know, speak too much for our peers who are doing the street outreach, but you know, they're very skilled at uh, connecting with people, building those trusting relationships. You know, chances are this is not the first time they've talked to people, um, so they already know them, uh, and can you know convince them to go to uh, a place that they have, you know that they can take them to to take advantage of other options that they might have uh, independent of the nonprofit. Um, but you know, it's this balancing act between you know respecting people's choice and autonomy, mm-hmm. and you know trying to make sure they understand the dangers of staying out in temperatures like this. Um, A friend of mine is part of a project where they, um, they, I don't know how they, they knit them or weave them or something. And they make these mats, you know, a lot of times they're made out of Mm -hmm. um, insulating materials, like, you know, like Mm -hmm. plastic bags or something like that. They make mats so that somebody maybe, um, who has a sleeping bag can put a mat like that under their sleeping uh-huh. bag and be a little bit more protected from the cold ground or the cold sidewalk. Right. right. And I admire that. I really do. I mean, I guess that's addressing the problem and, and helping people where they are. Right. Um, you know, we've talked about this before, but I think it's worth revisiting. What are the, of, what are the reasons why people are unhoused? I mean, we always think of like, you know, um, that if you're mentally ill or if you have an, a substance abuse, you know, that's those are the people we think of as, you know, falling into these kinds of straits. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that's all of it. No, it's definitely not. I think, you know, the, the real core root issue when you boil it down is lack of access to affordable housing. Uh, you know, there's there's people uh, in our world who are struggling with substance use and struggling with uh, mental health issues who are stably housed because they have the resources to afford it. Um, so mm-hmm. you know, when you see someone who's unhoused and perhaps are dealing with mental health issues, perhaps dealing with substance use issues, um, that's likely not the driving reason they're experiencing homelessness. The driving reason is because they don't have access to housing, permanent affordable housing. And, you know, what we know is that, you know, issues like mental health, issues like uh, substance use, those get exacerbated by being homeless um, because you're living in the elements, because you don't have regular access to medication or health care. Um, because you might be using substances to self-medicate. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
So the homelessness kind of drives those other things to manifest themselves. Um, so what we know works is providing people with permanent housing, providing that housing without conditions. So you don't tell someone they have to be sober before they can go in. You don't tell someone they have to be in their beds before they can go in. And when they're in the housing, you start to work with them and provide them with the services to address these other issues, to get them into treatment, to get them access to regular health care so they can be healthier and be stable. And we know that works. Um, so it really comes down to how do we scale that solution so people have access to the housing they need. Define the term. Every We all talk about affordable housing, affordable housing. Yeah. Are you talking about... Uh, Single-room occupancy hotels, SROs. I know that the Lawson Y down on Chicago used to be one of the places where people could go to buy shelter for a night. I think they're tearing that down or they're rehabbing it. or I'm sure it's going to be luxury apartments any day now, Doug. Um, But is, is that what we're talking about here? Or are we talking about different kinds of affordable housing? And if so... Um, what does that look like? I mean, how affordable does it have to be? What income do people who have who aren't who yeah. are not housed? I, I just asked you yeah, like ten questions, Doug, and I apologize no, no, for that. No, it's a great question. No, it's fine. So, yeah, affordable housing is a big term. Can refer to a lot of different things. There's someone could be talking about affordable home ownership programs. You know, so there's like a big range there when you use the term affordable housing. When we talk about it with respect to people who are experiencing homelessness. Uh, we're talking about housing that comes with deep rent subsidies. So uh, it's very common if you're homeless that you have no income. You might have in- some income from public benefits. You might be working. There are a lot of people who are working and simply can't afford housing, but you need some type of rental subsidy uh, to help you. So it might be uh, a rental subsidy that lets you rent an apartment in the private market. It might be uh, uh, affordable housing development, a building that was built could be affordable housing, that all the units in, in that building are subsidized. It could be uh, a, an SRO, um, like you're referencing, single room occupancy. You know, and like there's, those have changed a lot over the years where um, they used to be, um, you know, very basic, somewhat unsafe, you know, kind of, you know, chicken wire was involved. Um, now, when we talk about SROs, they're you know, you know, dignified, small efficiency units um, that can work really well for folks and provide them with dignity. Um, but yeah, so that like, the actual physical housing can be a lot of different things. The keys to it are there's a deep enough subsidy to make it affordable um, that at the person's income uh, and that it's theirs, that it's permanent and that there's supports for them in that space. That's really the keys to being successful. I've read about affordable housing for a very long time. And, you know, there's all these problems with, well, you know, developers say they can't make any money or they have to be careful if there's too many affordable units in a building, then it's difficult to rent the rest of them. Um, And I'm not saying that those are not valid concerns, 
But I also recently read, and I, I think it was in the Trib, about all this vacant land and all these abandoned houses and other properties that the CHA owns and is doing absolutely nothing with. They're not keeping the, the houses up so they can be either resold or offered as affordable housing. Does the left hand not talk to the right hand here, Doug? I think this is a chronic issue in the city uh, where different systems that are supposed to be addressing similar problems aren't talking to each other. Um, and the CHA is often made kind of an island where they're in their own world, their own silo, and aren't um, uh, connecting to the other systems. And, you know, like, you know, and this is not unique. You know, this is cuts across different administrations, different leaders. Um, uh, but, you know, the, there isn't the type of interconnectedness between the Chicago Housing Authority and its mission and those working on homelessness and their mission to really have kind of a seamless program that utilizes assets like vacant land, like buildings that aren't being occupied and need to be rehabbed nor to be occupied to really kind of create the type of scale of housing we need. So it's both about needing more funding, and it's also about how do we improve our systems so they're talking to each other and we're making use of the assets that we already have. Now, maybe I made an assumption here. Chicago Housing Authority has Chicago in the name, but is it not controlled by the city of Chicago? Is it maybe it is the problem that it's a federal agency and doesn't communicate with the local officials? Do I not understand the structure here? Well, clearly, I'm not sure about it. Yeah, so it's definitely Chicago. It is uh, it's a slightly different animal than like a like the Department of Housing. It's not a city agency per se. Um, you know, it's part of a, a federal structure for public housing. So different cities, different municipalities have mm-hmm. their own housing authority. Um, but, the, you know, traditionally the, the head of the housing authority is appointed by the mayor. There's a really close relationship with, between them. But they do have a particular charge that looks different from programs that are directly administered by the city proper. So it's a slightly different animal. But a lot of cities have um, found ways to make that work and make really good communications between different departments and between the housing authority and other entities in the city addressing homelessness and housing. So um, while it's a slightly different animal, there's no reason there couldn't be really good cooperation and interconnectedness. I probably told you this before, Doug, but years ago, I uh, took my kids to Cuba and we toured um, not just Havana, but the whole country. And at one point I turned to our guide and I said to her, I haven't seen any homeless people. And she looked at me like I had just said, oh, I think you just grew three more heads. And she said, well, if you don't have a house, the government gives you a house. Like, duh, you stupid American. What, you know, what happens in your country? Because, you know, if you don't have a house, we give you a house. Who doesn't have a house? 
And I'm so tired, Doug. I mean, I've I've read about, oh, you know, uh, what do they call them? Those little houses, those tiny houses, tiny houses. If you don't want people to be homeless, guess what? You provide housing. There's, you know, there's tiny houses and there's rehabbed houses and there's, you know, set asides. If you accept federal money, you've got to have a certain percentage. I hear all these ideas. And then, like, I think for for the tiny houses, it's like, oh, we're going to do a pilot project. Let's build four and see how they do. We seem to have the answers. We just don't seem to have the uh, have the energy to implement them, Doug. Am I, do you do you get as frustrated as I do? Oh, 100 percent. Because, I mean, you're you're right. Like, there's a lot of countries um, that recognize formally recognize housing as a human right. And it's built into their laws. It's built into their programs. And exactly as how you said, like, you don't have homelessness because people have a fundamental right to housing. Uh, and they provide that to them. Um, not that those systems are necessarily perfect, but it's a different orientation than we have in the U.S., where we treat housing as a commodity and we treat it as a privilege. And so, you know, there's these massive waiting lists for access to housing choice vouchers or public housing or other affordable housing developments. Um, and we're not, there's no legal requirement compelling the government to create more housing. And you're a hundred percent right that we have this bad habit of um, doing pilot programs uh, that do small uh, uh, programs um, that are great for the dozen, half dozen people that get access to them but they're nowhere near the scale that we need to really make a measurable impact on the problem. And so that's why, you know, we and other organizations are working on a solution like Burn Chicago Home, which is to create a dedicated funding stream at scale to create permanent housing support for people experiencing homelessness in the city. Because just like you said, we know the solution. The solution is affordable housing with supports. We know it works. It's proven to work. So that's not the problem. The problem is, traditionally been the lack of political will to put the funding in place at scale to build out that solution. So that's what we're trying to do now in the city. And I think we have a really good chance of doing it. Um, What happens? I I read that uh, the mayor was actually pursuing a two-pronged approach that there's bring Chicago home, which would increase the real estate transfer tax, and that money would be Mm -hmm. earmarked for uh, the unhoused. And there's also some move underway to take some of the TIF money and and issue bonds based on that. Are you familiar with that avenue? Can you explain that to me? Yeah, and I don't pretend to be an expert on the the bonding program that they're proposing with the TIF dollars. Uh, But they are very complementary, Bring Chicago Home and this other plan um, for bonding dollars. What Bring Chicago Home and its funding is focused on is specifically people who are experiencing homelessness. So, you know, people that likely need much deeper rental subsidies, need the, the social supports um, to be successful in permanent housing. The program around bonding uh, addresses a much wider range of affordable housing needs in the city. So it could be folks who are slightly higher income, folks who don't necessarily need social services, supports, um, it could you know be used for affordable home ownership programs, um, so they work uh, would work really well together to address 
with all different points on the spectrum in terms of affordable housing needs in the city. Are you worried, because I've heard um, some people express the concern that um, opponents of Bring Chicago Home, and I guess there's a big real estate group that is opposing it, m- might argue, well, we, we don't need it. You see, there's this other TIF idea they have, and I think that's supposed to raise, the TIF idea is supposed to produce over $100 million, if I've got my memory working today. And so you don't really need Bring Chicago Home. You don't have to vote for this extra tax because um, the money can come from a different a different pot. What do you think about that? Uh, I think the opposition are working really hard to blur lines and confuse people about what Bring Chicago Home does and doesn't do. Um, like I just, you know, just explained, there are two different programs aimed at two different uh, key audiences that need affordable housing. Uh, what I feel like the opposition has done is try to downplay the scale of need in the city across the spectrum. Um, we know that, you know, even, you know, the estimate is that Bring Chicago Home will bring in over $100 million a year every year. We know that can have a real measurable impact on homelessness in the city. That alone won't eliminate homelessness in the city because of the size of the problem that we have. It's critical. It's important. It'll have a huge impact like nothing else we've ever done in the city and will help thousands and thousands of people. But it doesn't in and of itself end homelessness right off the bat. So they're downplaying the scale of the problem and the scale of response we need to it. And they're also trying to confuse why and how we need different programs to address different aspects of the broader issue of affordable housing. I read that um, if you've got somebody who's unhoused and they have an addiction problem, that rather than trying to get them to treat the addiction problem and then give them housing, that if you give somebody who has an outside problem housing and they can start to live a safer, more stable life, that they are more likely then to deal with another layer of problems such as addiction. Is that your experience? Yeah, exactly. That's the model that uh, is proven to be the most successful. It's often referred to as housing first. Uh, Mm -hmm. So you put people in housing first before you um, focus on these other issues and you do it without condition. and, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense just, uh, you know, from a practical level. Think about what it's like, what it would be like to try to treat uh, a physical illness, a mental illness, a substance use while you're living uh, in a tent under a viaduct versus in an apartment where that's yours and it's safe. Um, you're going to be much more successful at adhering to treatment regimen, seeing your doctor, taking your medications, when you have stable housing than when you're in a precarious situation. So it makes a lot of common sense that it works, and what it's shown um, over time is that it really does. How much of, of, of the problem, or maybe the, the slowness with which we are addressing the problem, comes from the fact that there's a sense in some quarters that people who are unhoused, people who are homeless, brought it on themselves. You know, if you just hadn't done this, you know, it's your fault. So, like, grab your bootstraps and pull yourself up. Um, It seems to me like there is, even if it is not spoken of in polite company, that there's often a sense that somehow people who are unhoused, you know, did something um, to deserve that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's a big issue. Uh, and, you know, people don't want to acknowledge or often don't want to acknowledge or don't understand the broader systemic issues that drive people into experiencing homelessness. The general rise in cost of housing, um, the, the the problems with low-wage work, um, you know, like one thing we always talk about or talk about is, you know, uh, there but for the grace of God go I. Like we all could be in a situation where our lives take a turn and we could find ourselves uh, unstably housed or homeless. You know, we hear this a lot from the people that we work with who are experiencing homelessness where they had a good paying job, they had things together, they had a medical uh, emergency with themselves or with their family, they couldn't keep up. And they lost their housing. Um, and it's not that they made a bunch of bad decisions. It's not all on them. It's that that the things just didn't match up. And so that is unfortunately, I think, something that you know people. Um, I don't know if more comfort themselves with, but it, when you try to say it's just about you having made a bunch of bad decisions. That absolves yourselves of any responsibility to help go. solve the broader problem. Mm-hmm. And um, what we really want people to do is recognize that we all have a role to play to these broader societal issues. Like when we look at the numbers of people experiencing homelessness in Chicago, and this plays out throughout the country, um, it's predominantly um, uh, people who are black and brown who are experiencing homelessness. You know, much greater rates of homelessness if you're black or uh or brown than if you're white. Um, so this is about bigger systemic issues. Systemic racism plays a big role in all this um, that we all have a responsibility to help fix. And by saying, well, you just made some bad decisions. It's on you and it's your responsibility. Um, we're failing to live up to our role in helping others and helping solve the problem. Would you describe yourself right now as optimistic? I am. I am optimistic. I think, you know, we with bring Chicago home. Like we have a real opportunity to be the city we want to be. You know, Chicago is a city that cares about each other. I, I see no other city with a type of civic pride that Chicagoans feel about their city and about how, uh, how much they care about it, how much they care about others. And I think Bring Chicago Home is a manifestation of that, about um, the being the best version of ourselves that we would say as a city, we're going to take some funding, we're going to do it at scale, and we're going to dedicate it to taking care of the most vulnerable people in our city. Um, and we know that the voters in Chicago are with us, that they care about this issue, that they want to see this happen. Um, so I think there's real opportunity to do something that will help people in Chicago and will be a model across the nation for how a city can, can step up and do something really tangible and important. Doug Schenkelberg, Schenk, uh, executive director at Chicago Coalition for the Homeless. Um, maybe next time we talk, uh, there'll be a big pot of money and there'll be people actually doing something about this on a grand scale. Do you think we'll live that long, Doug? I I believe we will. Uh, I'm optimistic. 
Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Always appreciate talking to you, especially um, right now when it's uh, one of those times when we really have to think about somebody other than ourselves. Uh, thank you, Doug. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. We're going to gonna take a break for news. We're going to be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Take her away, Ian. Yeah, take it away, Ernie. It's going to be a bumpy ride. <laughs> Joan Esposito. Whoa, that's an explosive sentence. On WCPT 820. I am joined by famous, world famous, USA Today columnist, total handsome guy, People Magazine's sexiest man of the year, Rex Hupke joins us now. Rex, Renaissance man, how are you today? I see my check must have cleared. I'm glad you service. appreciate that. I was, um, I was, during the break, I was listening to this clip that I think I'm, I think I might play on the show tomorrow. It's from a, it's from a, a musical that nobody ever saw. And there's a there's a bunch of girls singing. I don't want to do the work today. I don't want to do the work today. I don't want to do the work today. And, uh, you know, I think it was uh, I was just listening to that during the break. And I'm sorry, but I think it it affected me in bad ways. And I apologize. That's quite all right. (laughs) It it was like a it was like an earworm. It was like an earworm. Well, I can relate to that too. I, I, I too didn't do the work today. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, though, I, I do want to, I do want to chastise you. Um, okay. that, you know, you said in your social media accounts that if they come for my wokeness, I will defend it with my wokeness cannon and my yeah. DEI 15, which fires 20 rounds of inclusive inclusivity per second. Rex Hupke, finally, you know, getting up <laughs> off the couch and doing something. Yeah, exactly. We got to take it. You got to find a place to take a stand. So I guess a, a fake stand. So that was. I it. love that. I love what you that you wrote with this. I want some of that inclusive inclusivity ammo. I I need it to get through uh, twenty twenty four. It's gonna be it's gonna be a crazy year. And um, I I want to start by talking a little bit. Well, we probably should briefly before we do anything else touch on Iowa. Um, because I believe sure. you, you, you did a great column explaining the Iowa caucuses. I tried to have a, a, a I had a journalist from Iowa on, you know, and it was really boring. Oh, they meet and they talk and they vote. I like your description much better that it's a secretive pagan ceremony rooted in Viking traditions. Uh, tell me about this. You said there are occasional human sacrifices. Yes, yeah, some minor bloodletting, uh, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, a, a bit of uh, I, I, it all. It all tied in with the uh, earliest known uh, examples of the deep fat fryer, which were just pits of burning oil, mm-hmm. uh, in, into, in, into which those who who picked the losing candidates uh, would be cast. And you know, it's a whole thing. I uh, I, I actually attended the Iowa caucuses. Um, I think in the twenty sixteen election, I believe. And I still don't know how the Iowa caucuses. <laughs> I actually sat through them, and I'm still like, "What?" <laughs> so well, you know, I figured there were some blanks I could fill in there fairly effectively. <laughs> a lot of a lot of blanks, and I really admire um, the Democrats for saying, "You know, this isn't 
this state is not representative of the country. Um, uh-huh. It is um, not. It's it's meaningless. Both actually, um, Iowa and New Hampshire, there they have a very small amount of their population that participates. Overall, the states are massively filled with white people. I mean, why should those yeah. two states give us a winner and a loser and and make us? You know, if Nikki Haley knocks it out of the park in New Hampshire, what does that really mean? Right. Yeah. And, and Iowa in particular, the first of all, the turnout was down uh, considerably. I think they said I think it was only about 100,000 people. So I'm remembering right. I, I apologize if I'm off there. And then, I mean, the Christmas was just a Republican caucus. And it was something like I mean, it was a tiny percentage of the total Republican voter population of Iowa. It was, I think I, I want to say 14 percent. I apologize. I don't have the exact numbers right in front of me, but I'm not far off if I'm off at all. So, um, you know, people are making a huge deal out of this. And yet you're talking about a a non-representative sample in terms of the country at large, demographically, as you said. Plus, you're talking about, and frankly, a non-representative sample of all Republican voters in Iowa because it's such a tiny fraction. Um, so, yeah, it's a very, it's all very weird, and and unfortunately, it feeds into, you know, uh, and I, I I'm always being part of the of the quote unquote media at large. I I, I don't. I try to go easy on us because it's rough and what we do is not always perfect because it's not always easy, but it does feed into this kind of narrative building that happens. Right. So what, I mean, Trump won Iowa by a lot. Absolutely. At the same time, I mean, you know, it's a tiny, it was a tiny fragment of the Republican voting population of Iowa and almost half of those people wanted somebody besides him. So it's all a matter of framing, right? I mean, you can frame mm-hmm. it as Trump is dom- Trump is dominant and, you know, off he goes. And then that creates this narrative for many of the people out there who, uh, you know, don't have their li- can't spend their lives with their, you know, faces buried in, in political news. And so they hear this and they're like, okay, well, Trump's going to win. And, you know, it's tough. It's a very, uh, it's, I, I think that the combination of, of the sort of oddness of the Iowa caucuses themselves combined with the media's tendency to leap on results and, and, and frame them in this kind of horse race manner, uh, it does a bit of a disservice to people, I would think. One of the things um, I do criticize the media a lot, uh, unlike you, I don't cut them any slack. You know, it's their job. They got to do it. They got to do it better. But I was, I have to tell you, shocked by the bombast, by the amount of coverage. We have 15 people in Iowa. For God's sake, why? You know, as I was talking to a friend of mine. Who was ta- who gave off a laundry list of other things happening in this country and around the world that were arguably more important than Iowa? We all knew going in what it, that it was going to be very cold. It was going to be very small. It was going to be three people. If there was any excitement at all, it was going to be ooh who who edges the other out? Is Nikki Haley going to edge DeSantis? Is DeSantis going to edge Nikki Haley? Not that it really not that it really matters, since neither of them were going to come close to Donald Trump. 
And right. you know, I'm not yeah. saying that it wasn't worth covering, but it they like I was watching a CNN. They covered it like it was the presidential election. We're everywhere. And when we come back to the studio, we have a panel of 15 people. We're going to analyze, you know, we're going to, you know, and I'm like, I'm sorry, but how desperate are you to fill your to fill your airtime that that you couldn't just say I was going on. It is a fait accompli. Everybody knows Donald Trump's going to come out on top. You know, we don't know how Nikki and Ron are going to do. We have one reporter there and we'll check in with them like every 20 minutes just to see if there's anything new and exciting. I I think that would have been to me something that I respected more than this. We're going to blow it out and pretend uh, that it's really important and that it's just so fascinating. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I mean, it was a foregone conclusion and it was uh, not particularly interesting or or representative. And I think the other, you know, the side problem, and this is something we'll be reckoning with all year. The the, the side problem is that, you know, tr- Trump is, uh, you know, almost certainly going to get the nomination. Uh, Trump is also almost certainly, if he loses to Biden again, going to claim that he won. I mean, we know that. He's still saying he won the, the last one. He's sure as hell not going <laughs> to say that he lost <laughs> this one. So we know that's coming. Now, every time uh, a situation like what we saw in Iowa gets blown up to sort of demonstrate, incorrectly demonstrate some sort of dominance on his part, uh, that is adding fodder to his framing of his rise to the presidency as being inevitable. And then in the event that it doesn't happen, uh, come election day, he has primed his voters to be like, well, what? This is impossible. The polls and the Iowa and the this and the that. And so that's that's uh, I think that's a component to this that, that the media really does need to be mindful of, because uh, even the poll, you know, the polling in general shows him it's tightened up a bit, but, you know, still shows him ahead of Biden a little bit in a lot of the polls. And, of course, that's meaningless because it's national and not state by state. But you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, all of these all of these markers, everything that allows him to say, you know, I am dominating in all the polls. I am, blah, blah, you know, that's his M.O. And, and that's also more importantly what he'll use uh, should he wind up actually losing again. And And then that's what. It's, I mean, you thought it was bad last time. Now it's going to be just ridiculous. I mean, he's got his his base is so primed for everything. They're so convinced he's going to win. They're so convinced that Joe Biden is a both a dementia-addled fool and a uh, notorious global criminal mastermind. So mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just, we're just heading. I mean, it's you can just it's like a slow motion train wreck. And and so I do hope. And I don't think it's going to happen, but I hope that uh, the media can kind of find ways to temper things a bit and just be a little more frame things in more accurate ways so that uh, we're not just handing him material, basically. Yeah. I am talking to a USA Today columnist, former Chicago Trib columnist, Rex Hupke. Um, we are have a lot more to talk about. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I want uh, Rex Hupke to weigh in on who he thinks Donald Trump will pick as a vice president 
uh, to campaign beside him. We'll be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by USA Today columnist Rex Hupke. We've been talking about the Republican presidential primary and uh, people are starting to throw names out as who Donald Trump might pick to be his running mate. Oh, a couple of months ago, I read an article posted by Jonathan Last, who is um, a conservative columnist. And he said that it's going to be really important to see who Trump picks, because if he picks somebody serious, um, then we'll know that, you know, he's taking this more seriously. But if he picks a toady, then we know that if he's elected, we can absolutely expect revenge and retribution. Uh, why Mr. Last posited that question is frankly beyond me, because Trump has made it clear uh, that he is going to be about revenge and retribution if he is reelected. Who do you think helps him the most with that? Boy, that's a that's a tricky one um, because the bottom line is it's going to be it's going to be the Donald Trump show, uh, and and you know it's one of those weird things where of course if if Donald Trump was actually smart and and if the people surrounding him were smart they would try to find a quote unquote reasonable you know person who's actually intelligent and kind of you know good at being a politician, uh, but I don't think they'll do that. I, I think it's going to be, uh, you know, there, there's been talk of like, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene and people, you know, I don't think he would, I don't think Trump would do that because he would see someone like that as a person who actually draws attention away from him. And for him, it has got to be, it's a, this is a, I mean, he may as well run without a vice president. That's <laughs> what I'm trying to say. Like from, from his standpoint, he, I don't think he wants or cares uh, to have anybody riding shotgun. And that's why Mike Pence is good. Cause Mike Pence was like, you know, having a mayonnaise sandwich on white bread laying around and, you know, just not really drawing a lot of attention. Um, my, I mean, if you ask me to guess right now, which I don't think is really possible, but I, I would, I would say, I think at least Stefanik has a, a pretty good shot. Um, She's been just an absolute Trump toady. <laughs> she just like yes. just absolutely disgustingly uh, butt kissing and whatnot, which of course is exactly what he wants. And she's she can be very snarly and you know anti lib and anti woke and all that kind of jazz. And you know I think she'd probably more or less fit right in. It would allow him to say he's got a woman on the ticket. Which, you know, I think there are some opportunities. Again, I don't think he would ever give a hoot about that one way or the other, but it would be purely opportunistic. So, yeah, I mean, if I right now, if I had to pull a, sort of a just a, a best guess, it would be her. But knowing him, I mean, it, who knows? <laughs> well, I think a, yeah. I think you have hit the nail on the head because I. Uh, I'm sad to say that I've spent too much time thinking about this for the last week or oh, two. Yeah. And um, I don't think it will be uh, Nikki or Ron, no, no DeSantis, no Nikki oh, Haley, no. Yeah. because he doesn't mm-hmm. want that sort of person. He has said that he thinks he made a mistake picking Mike Pence, like Pence was too independent, too right. independent. And uh, <laughs> and and actually one of those um, I don't know if it was Charlie Sykes in the bulwark. Somebody wrote 
just today or yesterday that part of the reason why he won't pick Nikki Haley is if he gets elected and Nikki Haley is his vice president, forget about the Democrats. The Republicans will impeach him and remove him from office so they can have Nikki Haley, who they believe to be nicely conservative but not crazy, as president. That his own party will use the mechanisms of government to get rid of him and install someone they think is sane. (laughs) That sounds like uh, exactly the sort of thing, like... Stephen Miller would whisper in his ear or yes, something, or but Steve you know, Bannon. Or, and first of all, I don't so, think the Republicans would. Uh, I think that it's something that they might do, but he would have to really tick them off. Um, you know, yeah, if they if they really felt like he was doing things that was that were going to hurt their reelection uh, chances, uh-huh. then they then they might move against him. But I think you hit the nail on the head. Because Elise Stefanik, she's a member of Congress, which gives her some credibility, but she's a Mm -hmm. total toady. I don't know if you've been reading um, Adam Kinzinger's substack that he started, uh, I don't know, a couple of months ago. But he talks about Elise Stefanik. He said, you know, when I was in Congress, when I first got to Congress, I met Elise Stefanik. I knew Elise Stefanik. And he said she was this rational, sane, reasonable human being. And he said, honest to God, I don't know what happened to her. She has become a person who is unrecognizable to me from what she once was. And he said all he could attribute it to was she decided what shape she had to take to, um, you know, get more power and be more important. And that is the shape she has decided to take. You know, and then there's, of course, yeah. the, the total toady uh, sycophant that some people are saying, well, maybe he'll go with a with a Carrie Lake because she, yeah. you know, nobody would want her ever as president. So Republicans will leave her alone. And uh, and but my fear with a Carrie, I think that might actually make him lose some votes because I think people would think this guy's not he's old. He's not in great shape. Do we really want Carrie Lake? As our president, I think that potentially could hurt him, though I'm sure, you know, she is right up his alley. I bet, you know, I could see him putting her in his cabinet. Yeah. Yeah. Although, yeah, I think for a vice president, he might. I mean, she's one of those in that kind of Marjorie Taylor Greene category where she could upstage you know he, he could be worried about her slightly upstaging him because she's as as completely bonkers as he is mm-hmm. you know what i mean like she's so out there and she's completely taken on that whole mega affect and just the complete conspiratorial nuttiness and so i feel like he could see carrie lake as a threat almost um so yeah i, I but i don't you know i mean do you yeah, think, I think if Savannah carrie is, lake is, ended up at the White House, she would go to all of the briefing rooms and she would soften the focus on all of the cameras. Yeah, everybody would have little, little like, uh, like little, uh, like uh, what are those little circle lights? <laughs> yeah, and, and that, just that soft focus, like she would put yeah. Vaseline, she would put Vaseline over all the camera lenses. <laughs> Be a whole new look for the White House. Gosh darn yeah. it! Uh, so, uh, God, yeah. I mean, what a 
complete. I mean, who knows? But again, it's, I, I think he gets someone who can just be standing in the background because again, he doesn't want, he doesn't want anybody. He doesn't want to share the stage with anybody. No, no. Um, and, and, and also frankly, any politician, including, I mean, I, frankly, I would like to think that Stefanik is smart enough to not do that. Cause I actually don't think she, I think she's smart. I think she's just nakedly opportunistic. Um, but if at this point you don't, don't recognize that you are going to destroy your political career by getting on this guy's side, then I don't know what to tell you. I mean, that is... uh, Don't you think she's already doing that, though? I mean, she's already, you know, traveled so far from where she started as a politician. I mean, it seems to me... That yeah, she, you may you well know, be that right. I, yeah. yeah, you're you're saying that you know she's gonna she's gonna be a toady, but then not accept the toady uh, assistant toady in chief job. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I guess once you go, I just can't. I truly, Joan, I can't. I just don't get it. Like I, I mean, I still. You would think by now I would I would have adjusted somehow mentally to to all of this weirdness, but but. You know, I mean, this uh, Trump is just he has somehow managed to become more both ridiculous and dangerous. And I mean, the the way he talks, the things he's saying and Mm -hmm. for anybody, anybody with a functioning brain to be able to want to get behind that. I I just don't see what I, I, I understand. Some people just will do anything for power, but. You have to see the end. You got to be able to look at least a, a couple feet ahead and see that this isn't going to end well, one way or the other. So, um, or do it's they remarkable. not pay any attention to the fact that his aides, advisors, and lawyers end up going to jail? Is that lost right. on them? I know. That's. It. I mean, everything. You know, none of this is surprising, right? Everything that we feared would happen with Donald Trump happened, and everything that we expected would happen after he lost has happened and, and, and continues to happen. (laughs) Like nothing has changed. He's still a jerk. He still says wildly racist, inappropriate, horrible things. He's out there calling, uh, Nikki Haley by, you know, her, the first name that's on her birth certificate or whatever, just to make kind of like birthers vaguely racist allegations. I mean, you know, it's all the same stuff. The guy's brain doesn't work outside of a certain range. (laughs) So, so all he can do, his speeches are the same. Like his speeches are still just the same stuff said over and over again. Mm-hmm. And still, still people are somehow thinking, yeah, this is the ticket. This guy right here, he's the one we should. <laughs> what are you talking about? It's mm-hmm. baffling to me. And maybe the uh, first time around, there were people who thought that the outrageous things he was saying, oh, that must be hyperbole. He just, you know, he knows how to get attention. You know, he won't sure. really he won't really govern like that. Or I think there was an element of the really wealthy who saw who were blinded by tax cuts and thought they could, you know, they thought that maybe he could be controlled. Hell, even his kids. I remember when uh, Gary, Gary, what's his name from Goldman Sachs, came in to be a domestic advisor. And supposedly the way Jared and Ivanka got him to give up his cushy Goldman job um, was to tell him, you know, my dad really has no interest in economic policy or governing. We're going to be making all of those decisions. So if you come on board, essentially you will be making all those decisions. And it didn't quite work out like that. 
it, even his own kids misread him. Yeah, it's striking. It's absolutely, yeah, it's absolutely striking. And yeah, I mean, I, I, there were people who, who voted for them the first time and, and then were feeling a lot of regret over that and, and whatnot. And I, I can forget, I personally, you know, I'm like, okay, I, I, under, I can understand what happened there. Uh, I can no longer understand. No, neither can I. Yeah. Now it's very, very clear. Um, I'm talking to USA Today columnist Rex Hupke. When we come back, we're going to talk about other despicable human beings like Aaron Rodgers. We'll be back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I am joined by Rex Hupke. He writes columns for USA Today, and he wrote <clears throat> a column about, oh, come on, Wisconsin. Uh, you know, you don't even like Aaron Rodgers. Just admit it. For those of you who are listening in uh, southern Wisconsin today in the sound of my voice, you know, don't get all don't get all in a huff. Even the people who live in the great state to the north of us, they know this guy is obnoxious. He's he's really offensive. He is one of those guys, Elon Musk, I'm looking at you, who had some success in an area and can only rationalize that success as the fact that they must be geniuses. And since I was good at this one thing, I should be advising people about everything. Yes, I'm a good football quarterback, but now let me talk to you about vaccines. And, you know, let me talk to you about Jimmy Kimmel, because I'm a really good football player, so I must be really, really smart. (laughs) I don't like him. Mr. Hupke, I don't like Aaron Rodgers. Not even, not even a little bit. Yeah, I'm. Not, I, I am not a fan either. Shockingly, perhaps. Um, but yeah, I think you kind of nailed it there. He, he is. I mean, you can't question his uh, football ability, uh, but you can sure question his intellectual ability and everything else beyond that. He just seems to have decided he's a. Uh, sort of wise man on the mountain and uh, uh, it's really <laughs> annoying. I actually, talking to uh, someone, a friend in Wisconsin who is a big Packers fan, uh, that person made what I thought was a very good comment, just said, you know, Aaron Rodgers is no longer a football player, he's an entertainer. Yeah. And that, and that I thought was kind of an interesting point of view. I mean, and really, I mean, you don't like... And, not, and, you know, like, look, say whatever you want to say. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm not freedom of speech and all that, of course, but you, you don't see most football players or athletes in general, I think, uh, they leave, they retire, and then they become a lot more outspoken about various issues. And some of that is because they can't speak up. I mean, you saw what happened to Colin Kaepernick, uh, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but but others, I guess with I Aaron Rodgers... It doesn't bother me if he wants to talk about anything. What bothers me is his is his lack of knowledge. Uh, Jimmy Kimmel put it well. I think he said Aaron Rodgers is so arrogant he doesn't realize that he's ignorant. Right. Yeah. And and Kimmel, uh, I, you know, and I'm not even I'm I'm more of a Stephen Colbert person than a Jimmy Kimmel person. But but Kimmel 
just I thought just absolutely eviscerated Rogers in his uh, in his monologue uh, about that. And and yeah, you know, don't come, <laughs> don't show up, don't go to war with a comedian uh, who's smart yeah. if you uh, unless you got the goods to back you up because they will lacerate you. And and that is exactly what happened. Um, and yeah, you're right. I mean, Aaron Rodgers, he's just you know, he's like. You know, he just sounds like a Twitter bro <laughs> throwing nonsense around. You know, he's like, what are you talking about, man? You don't know. Uh, it's very frustrating. But he acts, and he, he kind of, he almost embodies a huge part of the problem we're having in this kind of Trump era here where, you know, stupidity is not embarrassing. <laughs> you know, yeah. where, where you can just say crap and not, you know, not worry about whether it's true or not. And if somebody says it's not true, you just get, you know, snitty with them and and off you go you know it's just uh Mm -hmm. uh, that was that was s-n-i-t-t-y by the way just to make sure (laughs) you heard that (laughs) i don't um i don't well i don't listen to many uh, podcasts and i don't watch espn so i was not familiar with uh what's his name pat mcafee mcafee uh, who mm-hmm. did this show, and supposedly it was really weird because Pat McAfee, of course, was doing all these interviews, being asked about the the nonsense coming out of Aaron Rodgers' mouth, who was his regular Tuesday guest. And McAfee was, he was, on the one hand, he said that he, well, he said he, I assume he means the show, but he said he was paying Aaron Rodgers seven figures to join him every Tuesday, but he also said that he was really glad it was over, and he, he without trashing Rogers, was saying, like, you know, um, things like, oh, you know, if it had been up to me, we, you know, we'd have gotten rid of him sooner, implying that, not saying that. And I thought that was pretty weird, because you'd think if um, Pat McAfee really didn't like his Tuesday guest... Getting rid of him would have been uh, pretty easy to do. Uh, But just in the last couple of days, and I wondered if this would happen, there is talk that Pat McAfee may be losing his gig with ESPN. I don't know if you've read anything about that. What do you think about that? I mean, Pat McAfee, his argument is I bring interesting people on and I let them talk. It's it's kind of like the Joe Rogan. Oh, I didn't realize it was misinformation. Right. Yeah. Oh, my goodness yeah, gracious that's... me. I would never have misinformation on my podcast unless, of course, it gets me listeners. Um, what do you think should happen to Pat McAfee, if anything? I, I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> It's a little hard for me to, to sort of say uh, that, you know, this is the judgment. I, mean, I don't know how ESPN wants to conduct itself uh, exactly. I mean, for my money, uh, he's as responsible for the nonsense Rogers was spewing as as Rogers himself is. Um, and he is your exact. I think that Joe Rogan is a perfect example. You're, 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 he's using the same excuse. And again, this is this is in keeping with. Everything we've seen since the rise of, of Trump and this whole mega stuff, it is a, you know, you, you start the, and then you run away. I didn't start it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and it's just, there's no responsibility for incorrect or flat out dishonest uh, things that are said, even if they're harmful to other people or, or in, in, in the case of Rogers with a lot of the anti-vaccine stuff, actually harmful, you know, to public health. Uh, 
so it's all it's just it's all pathetic and and look frankly i'm up here um, as a it is a bunch of arrogant white dudes who think they know better than everyone just thinking they can say whatever the hell they want and it's fine and the consequences are not going to impact them because frankly they've probably never faced consequences before in their lives uh and that's to me incredibly bothersome and i'm so sick of it and i'm so sick of people running around saying stupid things with absolute impunity and not facing consequences. So I would love to see, I mean, I don't generally wish for people, McAfee is going to be fine. All right. I'm not worried about his future, Mm. (laughs) his future. He's the guy's a multimillionaire. Uh, He's going to be fine. If he loses his show, I'm certainly not going to, you know, shed any tears for it. I think it's justified. If that's what winds up happening, I doubt that'll happen. It might, it should, perhaps, because, again, I mean, until that's the whole thing, right? Until people who do this stuff start facing consequences, yeah, nothing, nothing matters, right? Nothing. And frankly, I think, I think that's why he did that whole. Well, I'm kind of. I have to admit, it's a relief to me to have him have him gone. Yeah, and that's why you kept him on and kept him on until your bosses said he's got to go because it's. Right. Yeah. I, it's to me that immediately smacked of a guy who's trying to keep his job. Right. I mean, look at everybody that Donald Trump, everybody that worked for Donald Trump, who's ever like gotten in trouble, turned on him or whatever. Mm-hmm. Suddenly they're the bad, you know. Oh, yep. well, I never liked that person anyway. That was the person was dumb. I don't know how. How did that person get hired by me? You know? Yeah. <laughs> it's all so you know, ridiculous. And, but the, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. <clears throat> yeah, but the, I mean, the problem is that, the, you know, this behavior gets mimicked, right? I mean, and mm-hmm. especially when you're dealing with something like, like ESPN, where you have a lot of young people watching this. And, you know, so they're going to, mo- I mean, this is your modeling behavior. And it's be again. It's this behavior that there are no consequences yeah. for arrogance, for stupidity, for dishonesty, for you know just cruelty, all these sorts of things. I mean, and until you know people start, you know, facing consequences. I don't mean you know like I'm not talking about like prison, but you know. Well, remember when there used to be peer pressure, and you didn't tell, right. make racist yeah. comments because you knew. That it would get you in trouble with not only strangers, but also your friend group because it was inappropriate. Do you remember that right, far right. back? Mm-hmm. Of course. Yeah, mm-hmm. of course. Of course. I mean, so, I mean, it's just not like, look, I mean, the people who send, you know, horrible, sexist, racist, you know, death threats, whatnot to journalists, as I'll use that as an example, because it's something I deal with. Uh, if. If those people started getting, you know, started getting fired from their jobs because they're, you know, in their work hours sending hideous anti-immigrant, xenophobic, racist stuff, maybe people would start being a little bit more careful about that. Yes, <laughs> yes I mean? they would. So, uh, yeah, so you hit them in the pocketbook. You have to have community rejection of that kind of behavior. It needs yep. to be, you know, if you're exposed as an, as an Internet troll, uh, you should be... Shunned. Frank, as far as I'm concerned at this point, if you support Donald Trump, given everything we know, I don't want anything to do with you. Get out of here. Yeah, really. <laughs> we got nothing to talk about. And, you know, not that I'm defending Aaron Rodgers because I'm not. 
Um, but I remember uh, for for those of you who haven't been around Chicago for a long time, there used to be one of the uh, first ever female sports reporters was a woman by the name of Jeannie Morris. Uh, she was married to Johnny Morris, who was a football player and was on Channel 2 for a long time. But his wife, Jeannie, um, was an incredible sports reporter and one of the first women to do it. And I remember she wrote this. It was like a New Yorker length article in the Sun-Times about athletes. And one of the things she pointed out was that if you are good enough to play at the professional level, you have been exceptional for a very long time. You have been exceptional since you were very young. And she said almost always these these young men are identified, you know, where they really stand out is is certainly by by junior high. And that's when everybody sees this immense talent and everybody starts catering to them and sucking up to them and making life easier for them and not holding them as accountable as other people because my god did you see did you see what he did on the field this kid's going to be in the uh, NFL and her argument right. was that emotionally most professional athletes arrest emotionally at about a junior high level because they are never required to mature beyond that because the world caters to them and makes life uh-huh. easy for them and solves their problems for them. And um, and they're basically, you know, jun- junior high is about the maturity you can expect. And I think that's part of maybe what we're seeing in Aaron Rodgers. Yeah, that I mean that certainly tracks mm-hmm. <laughs> the way he's behaving. I would agree with that. So yeah, a lot of these, a lot of things. You know, you feel like it's somebody where you're like, if I was your kid, you'd be like, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Stop that! Mm-hmm. Knock it off. Uh, yeah, yep. that makes a, a huge amount of sense. Thanks. Um, uh, we, Rex Hupke and I are going to take a break. <laughs> we are going to be back with yeah. more. Right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Dear God, Rex, I shut my mic off during the break and I forget to turn it back on again. You'll never know what came out of my mouth just then. It's going to be my little secret and I'm going to take it to the grave. So let's start again. Um, I am joined by Rex Hupke, USA Today columnist and big, big, big supporter of the Barbie movie. <laughs> Did you really go see it? Did you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was great. I loved it. Uh, I thought so, too. I went and yeah. I it, it's probably the last time I actually was in a theater. And I I looked at Ray as as like it was beginning. And I was like, I can't believe as as infrequently now as I go to a theater that I came to the Barbie movie. But so I, I, I didn't approach it with a real open mind, but I thought it was awesome. Oh yeah. It was really fun. It was a great movie. I loved, I just, I also love just how you could almost feel, uh, people, <laughs> how it would make certain people angry. I thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. Along those lines. I mean, this really, um, the the far right was really up in arms over over Barbie. You know, I thought maybe it was just Tucker Carlson and his, you know, let's all shine red light on our genitals and that'll make us men and virile. I thought maybe it was just a little quirk of Tucker's. But this seems to be something that the far right, Charlie Cook, Tucker Carlson at all, are obsessed with some kind of vision of masculinity some sort of hyper masculinity which means that you know any kind of like 
um, any kind of meeting women halfway or appreciating them is a sign of weakness. What the hell is mm. that all about? Yeah, Lord, if I know. I mean, all, all I know is the, 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 I mean, it's, that, that stuff is, uh, uh, it, it gets, it gets magnified, it gets amplified so much because it's so ridiculous. And of course, that's what they're trying. I mean, I, you know, I'm not naive enough to, to not know that that's exactly what they want, right? They're trying to, you know, say and do things that will be amplified to further, you know, garnish their reputation as, you know, right wing bad boys or whatever the heck they're trying to get. But at the same time, it is such a, it's such a backwards way of looking at the world and at things in general. And it's one of those where, you know, there's so much going on right now that we're fighting these these political fights and, and we're dealing with Trump and his MAGA movement, which is also wildly regressive. Um, but at the end of the day, I don't think there's a whole lot of uh, debate about which way things are going to wind up swinging. And I always kind of look to, you know, like I, I remember one year I, I talked about the Super Bowl ads. <laughs> and I, cause I think that, you know, the Super Bowl is the biggest thing, right? And if all of all the Super Bowl ads, I think it was somewhere in Trump's term, you know, they had this strong uh, equality message and, you know, the pro-immigration. Uh, the, I mean, society, you know, we do not tend to slide backwards very much when it comes to things like rights and stuff. That's why the Dobbs decision on abortion was such a, uh, such a just massive uh, quake that, that has impacted so many and continues to, because I don't think we as Americans are accepting of rights going backwards. Uh, and we certainly don't expect that to happen. So, um, you know, I think the, the kind of the sort of hyper macho blah, blah is just ridiculous. And the, the, the total percentage of people in this country who actually buy into that is a, a tiny in the grand scheme of things. It's just that it gets amplified. Right. And some people might kind of parrot it, but at the end of the day that, you know, they don't really, don't really feel that way, or they would certainly never talk that way to anyone they know. Um, so yeah, it's it's embarrassing. I mean, it's a bunch of insecure dodo heads who you know are trying to make a buck. They're all grifters. <laughs> <laughs> and it's I mean because it, it's what's so funny, like they just and they're all cowards too. I mean, you know, any of these people who have actually like have faced consequences, kind of like what we're talking about. You look at all the January six people. Oh my God, they've gotten into court and you know, crying like crazy and they're blaming Donald Trump and they're doing everything to save their own skin. So, you know, these, these people, it is sad to a degree. It's not sad in the way that I feel sad for them because enough already, you know, grow up and get your act together. But, but there is a real, um, a real patheticness to, (laughs) to those who, you know, have to promote any form of, toxic masculinity who have to put down people who are different from what they consider the norm, uh, who have to target transgender kids and, you know, say hateful things. And I mean, that's just, it doesn't get any weaker than that as far as I'm concerned. And, and, um, and that's at the end of the day, that's the real irony is that these mopes that are acting like they're super tough guys are just absolutely 
pathetic little weenies. <laughs> yes, I think that is the uh, the actual official term for them. <clears throat> you know, before um, yeah, be, before we we wrap up, well, let you know all all of our discussion topics today. Um, I don't know if you saw this. Um, I used to subscribe to the uh, Baltimore Sun. You know, I used to subscribe to probably 40 different newspaper publications, and I've I've tried to narrow it down, you know, to the ones that I can actually be sure that I'm going to read every day. Um, but the Baltimore Sun was a great paper, and I don't know if you saw this recently, but it just got bought. It was an Alden Capital, just like they bought the Tribune. They bought the Baltimore Sun, and they sold it to a, an ostensibly local guy by the name of David Smith. David Smith owns a couple of couple three television stations that are a part of the Sinclair network. Remember the Sinclair uh-huh. network that has everybody uh, do the same sort of um you know anti-immigrant kind of rhetoric stuff. Um I don't it was somebody I don't know if it was one of their reporters posted on social media in a tense three-hour meeting with Baltimore Sun staff, new owner David Smith said he didn't read newspapers, asked staffers to rank each other, like who's important, who can we, you know, who can we not do without, and suggested that the paper, rather than being like nonpartisan, should be more like his Sinclair television station Fox 45 and should be, you know, have a real conservative point of view. And it just broke my heart to read this. And somebody commented that, you know, you always think local ownership is, you know, is the savior for these newspapers, but not in this case. I mean, the the guy who owns your paper shows up in what was a three hour meeting and 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 said, I saw the actual quote. He's like, yeah, in the last couple of years, I've read maybe, I don't know, the newspaper, maybe four times. Um, it just. It hurts. It does. Yeah. Well, we, we went through that at the Tribune with Sam Zell. I mean, him, uh, he and his posse of weirdos were just the worst. I mean, they would tromp around the newsroom insulting people and. I mean, they were just garbage. They were absolute garbage. I mean, they they were yelling at people in meetings, and they, they knew nothing, absolutely nothing. No respect whatsoever for the inherent public trust that is a, you know, a news organization, especially one like the Baltimore Sun, Chicago Tribune, you know, uh, something that's important and valuable to a community. So, yeah, I saw that, and I was disgusted. And unfortunately, though, that's just happening. <laughs> it's happening all over the place. It's happening way too much, and... Uh, you know, I mean, you see just people that are uninterested, unqualified, and they're just basically goofing around because they've got $80 bazillion. And if there was ever a reason to tax wealthy people more, it would be those sorts of examples. Because <laughs> like, they clearly don't care. They, you know, they might as well just burn the money for all they care. They just want to go in and own the libs a little bit and just whatever. And it's really, it sucks. And it, uh, yeah, I, again, I, uh, you wouldn't. The stuff we went through at the Tribune with Sam Zell was absolutely, it was bananas. I mean, it was absolutely ridiculous and despicable. And so I, I can only, I mean, I can imagine, that's what I'm trying to say, what those poor folks at the Baltimore Sun uh, were feeling. And, and it's just awful. I hate it. I hate to see it. You know, I 
I knew when Alden Capital came in, you know, we all knew his their reputation. We we knew what to expect. But I was really shocked uh, by Sam Zell. I mean, I didn't really know much about him. Actually, one of his top lieutenants, um, Shelley Rosenberg, was a woman that I've known um, not well, but, you know, socially for a long time. And she's wonderful and she's terrific and she's philanthropic and um, but, you know, and, and he came in like a bulldozer. He didn't seem to yeah. understand what he had bought, but that, you know, it was like the Aaron Rodgers thing. I'm rich, so I know how to do this better. All you guys who've been doing this your whole life, you don't know anything. Listen to me. I'm rich, therefore I'm smart. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you were just a bunch of, you know, loud Texas pigs, basically. I mean, they were horrible. And I, uh, <laughs> and, and again, it's like, uh, I don't know what, I don't know what we collectively do about these sorts of situations. It is unquestionably detrimental to society and to the overall community good anywhere, whether it's Baltimore or Chicago or a much smaller town, because this is happening all over the country. I mean, there are so many places where, you know, papers are just getting shut down, if not overtaken by people or corporations with, you know, an axe to grind or a specific ideology. And that's really problematic. I mean, look, Alden is awful, and I'm certainly not going to say anything good about them. I mean, I'm, I'm happy that they you know, they came in and it hurt the Tribune a lot, for sure. Like, no question about that. Uh, I, and I'm not 100% familiar, obviously, since I'm not there anymore with the day-to-day. But and the Tribune is at least still doing its thing, right? I mean, the Tribune has not. Mm-hmm. It's been lessened and hurt. And, and the people there deserve infinitely better than what they're getting uh, because there are a lot of immensely talented people there who I care about a lot. But, um, you know, it's not... At least it doesn't seem as kooky as that guy in Baltimore. So you almost have to look at these things. If you're in journalism, there are times, and I've experienced this too, where you have to just be like, well, this stinks, but it could be a lot worse. <laughs> it could yeah. be, you know, the guy that wants to turn us into a, you know, a, a video blog or, you know, I don't know, whatever. It's, so, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's sad. And I, I do hope that there is a pendulum swing in this country back to recognizing you know, the, the the need for good, strong, local journalism and national as well. Um, and, uh, uh, I mean, you know, it's the locals that are really getting hit the hardest. Because, um, yeah, it matters. It matters a lot. I mean, people have seen it. I mean, I think, you know, you're seeing good stuff happen in Chicago as well, like Black Club Chicago has, has done amazing stuff. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, WBEZ and sometimes pairing up. Seems like that's gone well. Uh, so. So there's some hope. Uh, we just have to. There is hope. I think so. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, it's it, that hope. That hope, unfortunately, gets routinely overrun by this kind of nonsense where you have like Elon Musk Jr. coming along to <laughs> just, just try to create chaos for no particular reason other than their ego. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I agree. And, and that is what a wonderful, hopeful note to wrap up on. Oh, my God. <laughs> Rex Hupke, man who is glass half full, uh, bringing us hope and joy here on WCPT. Thank you, Rex. As always. <laughs> we are going to take a break for news. We'll be back with more after that. 
Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. I am pleased to be joined by the lovely and talented Tony Fitzpatrick. Uh, how are you, Tony? How's your health these days? I'm much better. I am I am not the uh, creaking corpse you talked to last time. <laughs> Other than being very, very cold, it is colder than a nun's buns on Good Friday out there. Yes. Yeah, a little bit earlier today, I was uh, talking to Doug uh, Schenkelberg about the Chicago Coalition for the Homeless and what kinds of things they were doing for the unhoused in this kind of weather to, to try to get people to shelter and, and warming stations and getting shelters to stay open for longer hours um as annoying as it is for you and me i mean at least we know that we are more likely to survive than somebody who's out on the street oh absolutely you know i had an interesting conversation the other day with uh dr zach mucha um who's just written a book about social work called swimming to the horizon and a great deal of his practice um, was street work with with people with you know crack habits and uh, mental health crises, and you know we were talking about the the folks stuck out in the cold, uh, you know basically the migrants, and he said something very interesting to me. He said, "Why is this not like a, a good gig for AmeriCorps? You know why can't they take some of the empty buildings, retrofit them, uh, and, and give?" Migrants is a place to stay for four months. There are hundreds upon hundreds of empty buildings in Chicago that have running water, that have plumbing, that have, um, you know, you can hook up the heat. And he said that this is something that could be handled in a much more germane and, uh, and, and morally resonant way. And then I started reading his book. And uh, What's the title of the really book again? It's called Swimming to the Horizon, and then the, the, the subtitle is Crack, Psychosis, and Street Corner Social Work. And, you know, I was in my conversation with him. He was here for about an hour and a half. And um, in my conversation with him, I thought, you know, I, 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 think, I, I think I'm talking to a guy who has some of the answers, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and... and you know, and, and without a hint of cynicism or, or you know, oh, poor us or anything like that, I mean, uh, there's a great deal of optimism in how he sees this. Mm-hmm. And, and a way, honestly, um, yeah, you know, you could say all the, all the public schools that ROM closed, you put migrants in there, you just make sure that they're temporary kind of like dorm-like things. You know, make sure there are showers running, make sure there's food service brought in and out or even made there. And then you put, you know, say some kid who's working off a student debt who is bilingual to run the job bulletin board and hand people out venture cards once a week and send out bilingual volunteers or, you know, other other kids who are working off student loans Uh with, with these folks to places that are hiring. Every place, every service industry in the city is hiring. You know, every kitchen, every 
every restaurant, every manpower type of operation. Um, you know, you look at a lot of these guys, you see them standing outside the Home Depot. I mean, even, even in this weather, you know. Yeah. So I mean, this was something I just really wanted to uh, bring up with you because I've been thinking about it since I talked to him. And um, there are things that people in, in local government here are not looking at. Well, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up because when uh, Governor Pritzker shot down the uh, the tent city that was going to go to Brighton Park, when Governor Pritzker said, no, the land underneath is too toxic and there's no way to make it safe here, you know, the state's going to provide the dough and we're not going to provide the dough for this. Governor Pritzker at the time said, you know, there are a lot of empty federal buildings. I mean, you mentioned the schools, Absolutely. which actually is perfect because they have a cafeteria. They have showers uh, for the they gym classes. Um, but Pritzker was like, you know what? We have empty federal buildings. Would you like to have a conversation about that? Um, I, I, you, know, you, you could hire some retired policemen to provide security um, and, and do it in a way that is that is. Uh, you know, humane and gentle, and um, you know, you you could really build this build this new community into our city and and help people integrate a lot more seamlessly than we're doing it. It would seem so, but you know, maybe there's a whole level of complexity that somehow I don't understand. It seems like we've got the empty buildings. We may not have enough money to do everything, but we've got some money. And I just uh, I was talking to Greg Hines from Crane's Chicago Business, and he said that he thinks that Brandon Johnson, you know, is not taking advantage of the bully pulpit. You know, hold make a speech, hold a press conference and say these are the kind of people, this is who we are. We are people who take care of other people. And, you know, yep. and, and this is how we're going to do it. And it's going to take some sacrifice, but this is who we are. And I, unless I missed it, Greg hasn't heard him, you know, I mean, he hasn't heard him speak publicly like this. I haven't heard him speak publicly like this. I mean, he could get people on his side. He could get goodwill instead of the, you know, instead of the pushback that we keep reading about. Absolutely. He seems to be hiding from this problem. And there is a way there's a there's a way of looking at the upside of this. There's a way for him to go out and stand among a bunch of migrants and say, hey, you know what? They walked all the way across Mexico to be Americans. They want this worse than any citizen you've ever met. Let's help them get it. Let's use these empty buildings. Let's use the educational opportunities afforded to us um, with all of the students that are fighting to pay back student loans. Uh, Put them to work in an AmeriCorps-type situation and help these folks integrate. You know, I know kitchens, you know, know, my friend, my friend uh, Dave Bonomi has got Peanut Park on Taylor Street. He's having the hardest time keeping, you know, uh, uh, you know, kitchen help and stuff like that. And, and, you know, all all they're waiting for is for people to walk through the door. Mm -hmm. You know, all of the that are going up in the West Loop, going up on the the near north side, all of the... uh, 
Um, you, you know, I mean, the one thing Chicago has become is a huge industry is the restaurant industry. And you look at the kitchen, and it's mostly, uh, mostly Hispanic people uh, working the line that are the line cooks, that are the chefs, that are, um, and, and, and believe me, I honestly think that that's an industry that could come to the rescue. I think the constructions and demolition in, in industries could come to the rescue and, and just, you know, hire these folks. Um, I mean, it breaks my heart when, you know, we drive by uh, literally families on the corner, you know, uh, women with you know, two and three small children and they're selling candy bars or doing, you know, doing whatever hustle they can to just try and scrape enough money together, you know, to eat at a, at a very subsistence level. Um, there's a way out of this and there's a way out of this where we could be the model. We could, we could be the city that figured this out. We could be the city that absolutely stood tall and stuck to the promise. Mm-hmm. America. I agree. I I really think, you know, every crisis uh, presents an opportunity. You just have to face it head on. And, you know, one of the things Brandon Johnson was so good at when he was campaigning was speaking to people in a way that affected them emotionally. That sort of that preacher's yeah. rhythm, that preacher's rhetoric that really oh, gets can't. people to feel something. And he, I don't understand why he's not using it. You know what? He campaigned in poetry and he realizes he has to govern in prose. Hmm. But there is still a way to use that considerable charisma to, to rally people around the idea of you know, helping uh, migrants, the, the least of your brothers. I mean, this is this is obviously a man who's who's probably raised in the church, and um, this is a good opportunity to you know, uh, basically exercise those values. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, particularly with all of the empty buildings, all of the empty schoolhouses. Uh, this 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 isn't brain surgery. You know, you can get people in out of the cold. I mean, the people out there uh, sleeping in Humboldt Park in the tents, they're going to get colder, they're going to get sicker, and people are going to start dying behind this. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, wet, the Chicago weather showed up for real in the last week. <laughs> and uh, these are, you know, these are small children. These are people without, you know, who who knows how much they have to wear. Yeah, You know, um, but uh, there's an opportunity to create a whole new empowered, um, energetic uh, group of citizens. And if we don't take advantage of it, if we don't extend our hands and extend our help, then we have failed as a city. I um, I think that is very well put. By the way, um, I looked up. Zach's book, and it is not officially published yet, Tony. It doesn't publish until February 19th. Uh, but please tell Zach if he can get me a PDF or some kind of proof copy yeah, we'll that I could book. read. I'd love to have him on the radio and talk to him about yeah. this book. You know, I've known him for 40 years. He, When he was 18, he was my assistant. And it was humbling to have an assistant that's about 10 times smarter than you are, you know. <laughs> um, 
But, uh, he's, you know, he's also a phenomenal poet. A, a brand new collection of his poetry just came out, um, which, you know, I couldn't be more proud of uh, my friend. Uh, the, the new poetry collection is called The Ambulatorium. But uh, this book, um, you know, it, you know, it sounds like it might be a grim enterprise. It's not. I mean, there are things in this book that are screamingly funny. You know, when he was doing social work, he had one guy who was who would you know mentally was not uh, altogether. Who honestly thought that Zach was like, and and him were in some kind of cop buddy movie or something. Mm-hmm. And it's hysterical is of the dialogue these guys have. But um, he he has an insight uh, uh, to mental illness and how not to let this be the scourge of folks um, winding up institutionalized or homeless the rest of their lives. Um, He's an incredibly brilliant guy. Uh, So I will put you to, I will introduce you guys electronically, and I will make sure you have a copy of that book. But um, the conversation I had with him, this was just Sunday. You know, we, we were talking about the migrants. There was a young woman right on the Western Avenue here, right up outside the studio across the street. And she had two little kids with her. One, you know, in, in like a backpack type arrangement, you know, and um, one just next to her, you know, at her feet with a little blanket wrapped around her. And she was, you know, selling candy bars, you know. And, you know, so I, a, a couple of times, I don't, you know, sadly I don't speak Spanish, I, you know, I barely speak my mother tongue, um, but, uh, you know, I gave her some money and, and tried to instruct her as to where she could go get help. And, um, I couldn't discern whether this person was, was in a, uh, a shelter of some sort or not, but, um, uh, it was, it just, it, it broke my heart, you know, I mean, yeah. it just, um, this is not who we are as a city. We do not let people sleep outside and die. Yep. Yeah, I I agree with you. Um, <clears throat> that is not who we think of as ourselves, and it is not who we should be. Um, uh, Doug was. Uh, I will t- say that Doug was uh, very confident that the. Um, uh, real estate transfer tax increase. He seemed to think that it would pass. Um, he thinks that people understand what the money's for, and that their better angels will step in, and um, and people will 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 pass that tax that's supposed to create a a nice um, pot of money for uh, the unhoused. Uh, hopefully, you know, I yeah. think, I think one. One um, ward is doing a pilot project with tiny houses. Since it's tiny houses have worked in so many places, why we can't just commit, you know, why we're doing a pilot project because we have to assess it for ourselves. I don't know. Um, But, you know, it would seem like that's the kind of thing, um, you know, what is it? What Doug said, you know, the housing first, you know, you can't expect people to deal with their medical problems, their addictions. There are um, other problems um, un- if they are unhoused as well. And I remember some, a long time ago when I was still working in television, um, somebody, an expert said to me, you know, we were talking about 
on the unhoused and mental illness. And they looked at me and they said, you try spending two weeks on the street and see if you don't, you know, if you, if you don't lose a few marbles just because of yeah. the way it is and how you have to live and, you know, how you have to figure out where you're going to get food and, and a blanket and, and all that kind of thing. You know, it's not, it's not something that is, um, um, a big supporter of good mental health living when in an unhoused situation. Absolutely. I mean, um, I, you know, I, when it's warm enough, I, I walk around Humboldt Park, and there's a collection of guys who pretty much live in there. And to their credit, they they try to keep themselves somewhat somewhat clean and stuff, and they they fish all the time, and um, and they, they don't really speak English, but you can tell that their whole day is spent figuring out how, how to just alive how do we exist mm-hmm. you know they have they have tents that they you know in the warm weather there they used to be a little bit uh it had a little bit of trepidation about putting tents up because the cops would come and make you know take them down well now this is a whole different deal and um you know they have their tents usually among the cover um and they're really not hurting anything it's not I don't notice all kinds of garbage around. They're really pretty respectful of the fact that they're in the park. But um, and these are guys who have jobs. You know, these are guys who have. Uh, you know, they they go to the Home Depot and they you know they get as many days of work um, doing demo for construction and stuff like that as they as they can. You know, as uh, somebody who does not speak English can. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, I had one guy who knew a few of them would kind of explain them to me. Um, but this is not, you know, the, the, the migrants are a new problem, but the problem of homelessness is not a new problem in Chicago. You know, it's, uh, we, they walk among us and we kind of pretend they're not there, you know, and that's maybe part of the problem. I think we started doing that. Right after the Trump years, or right after the Reagan years, um, you know, that's when you started hearing uh, unhoused people referred to as homeless. It, it, it's a word that sounds very nice, but creates uh, an immense cultural chasm between us and them. And that was the whole point of the Reagan years, us and them. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's when we began to lose our compassion and I hope we uh, it revisits us. I hope that we uh, find a way to find our better selves and hold out a hand to these folks. Because when I think of it, you know, Venezuela is a long way away. They walked here. Yeah. It's, it's really just beyond astounding when you think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that, that clown in Texas, I'm, I'm hoping... I'm hoping they wheel him into the Hague and try him for human trafficking because what he's doing by its very definition is human trafficking and in violation of so many federal and state laws, it's not even funny. Why has nobody indicted him? You You know, know, I wonder about that too. I mean, because we have, you know, we have a democratic progressive 
um, roster of people leading our state. And I'm wonder I'm wondering why Kwame Raoul hasn't found uh, a legal way to uh, go against Greg Abbott and Ken Paxton and all of of their ilk. It would just seem that there would be something they could do. And I mean, I know they're everybody's passing these laws in Illinois about, you know, going after the bus companies and, um, you know, um, impounding these buses that don't follow all the rules. But that seems, I don't know, kind of lame to yeah. me. That's yeah, they're just uh they're, they're just indicting the hand that, you know, drops the sword, not, not the person actually uh, ordering it. I, I, I would love to see him indict the sitting governor of Texas for human trafficking and and to try and take that that court case uh, to the world court, to The Hague, mm-hmm. you know, because in Trump's America, it'd probably never get anywhere. But... Uh, yeah, you know, Crimes against I mean, humanity. Yeah. I mean, I've been learning a lot about the legal definitions of genocide and um, war crimes and crimes against humanity. And it's all um, it's all very, uh, very well delineated in language. But uh, um, and I don't know if the, the least uh, po- most the least powerful category is crimes against humanity, the most difficult one to prosecute, according to the experts I've talked to. But, you know, Abbott is doing this for PR. And even if a court case failed, I think it would be good retaliatory PR. Absolutely. The minute that little girl, uh, the little Venezuelan girl died in that shelter, he became uh, an accessory to murder. Sure seems that way to you and me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I I would, you know, Kwame Raul, you know, you know, put on your big boy pants and file a human trafficking case against the sitting governor of Texas. Um, It's probably unprecedented, but it needs to happen. I Um, think so. I mean, before we enter the next year of uh, our, our politics, you know, it looks like it's going to radically shift right again. Um, I'm, you know, my my greatest hope is that Joe Biden wins. Um, but I'm 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 just seeing this uh, this this steamrolling kind of energy with. Uh, you know, you know, more than half of our country. I mean, it's, it's yeah. lost its mind. Well, I think so. if it's Biden versus Trump, it's um, <laughs> I think I think Biden can beat him again. But I worry yeah, about I, I worry about third party candidates. I worry about yeah. no labels. I worry about RFK. Yeah. I, you know, because, as you know, well, there's RFK basically four rules. states that decide who gets to be president. And Illinois yeah. ain't one of them. I know. Uh, RFK is a drool case. You know, I mean. Oh, Tony, we've got to we've I've got to invite you back and we can do an entire segment on RFK. Would you agree to that? (laughs) Absolutely. He's an idiot. I I couldn't agree more. Um, And let's let's plan that for the very near future. Um, But I got to wrap things up now. Um, Thank you, Tony. Glad you're doing well. And thanks uh, for telling us about Zach and his book. Please put him in touch with me. Okay. 
Joan, I'm going to put Zach in touch uh, in touch with you, and uh, um, believe me, he, he, you can have an absolutely eye opening conversation with him. And he's a brilliant guy, and the book is just uh, astonishingly good. Awesome! That would be wonderful. Thank you, Tony. All right, we'll see you. Take care. See ya. Um, we're going to take a break. We're going to be back with more after this. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. It is Thursday, and on Thursdays, as you well know, the Picayune Sentinel comes out, the Eric Zorn newsletter that we are all reading. Eric is here to talk to us about it. Hey, Eric, how you doing? Hi, Joan. Nice to talk to you. How are you? I am... Um, I'm remarkably good, uh, considering, you know, that the weather is awful and, and politics is awful. And um, I don't know, maybe I've developed a really thick skin, Eric. This is just going to be such a hellish year, doesn't it? I mean, it, it just feels really. like 2024 is I, I just I, I saw the results from Iowa. And I know people are trying to take some comfort in the fact that only Fifty-one or fifty-two percent of Republicans in Iowa supported Trump, and and, and the uh, others supported somebody else. But I, I think Trump is steamrolling his way to the nomination. That with the opposition split the way it is between Haley and, and DeSantis, you're just not going to see anybody coming close to overtaking him. He's going to be the nominee, and his followers are just crazy. The whole party is crazy. I saw the quote from DeSantis today saying that. The uh, vaccine, the, the uh, COVID vaccine, it makes it more likely that you're going to get COVID. I mean, that's uh, nuts. Those people oh are crazy. I didn't think, I, I thought, I, I didn't realize that he was uh, quite that loony. Yeah, um, and and uh, so it, it would have been like eight years ago, I was pretty happy that Trump was going to be the nominee because I thought that Hillary Clinton was going to win 50 states plus the District of Columbia. Um, and um, and I was so tragically wrong about that. And so I, um, I hesitate to think. I, I've heard a lot of political punditry to the effect of, well, uh, Biden, the easiest candidate for Biden to be is going to be Trump, that, that he would have a harder time with Nikki Haley, a harder time with Ron DeSantis. I hope that's true. Uh, I think it might be true. Uh, on the other hand, the risk of having this man become president again is just so high. Anyway, yes. this is bringing me this is bringing me down. Let's talk about something happy. Sorry. Well, let's talk about the demise of fruit stripe gum. I personally, I personally, when I read that news, I was like, oh, no, Ray, they're getting rid of fruit stripe gum. Um, and, and yet you're celebrating. You're celebrating the demise of an American tradition, American legend. Fruit Stripe Gum was introduced in the 60s by Beechnut Gum, and they had those uh, the wild cherry, mixed fruit, lemon, lime, and orange. Lime was always my favorite, and I used to love that gum when I was a kid, except I noticed right away, everybody notices right away, that you put in your mouth, there was this burst of flavor. It was kind of sublime for about 20 seconds, and then the flavor just went away. It lost its flavor faster than any gum I've ever had. Um, and 
I just I, I haven't chewed it in years, and then I saw this news item that that uh, it's now it's now being produced by the by the uh, Ferrara Candy Company in Chicago. That they finally decided that they're not going to make it anymore, and wow. I'm sure that people are, are hoarding it. But honestly, <laughs> have you have you purchased it or chewed it in, in decades? Um, no, honestly, no. There is only one really, I guess I don't know. We could call it a, an old fashioned kind of gum that I would buy on a regular basis, and that's Beeman's. Beeman's. Yes. You used Beeman's to have to get, go to World Market. It was the only place you could find Beeman's, and then even they stopped carrying it, and I found somebody on the Internet who sold it. But I, I learned in my Beeman's research that it, because it is not really, you know, it's not really advertised, it's not really sold in a lot of places, they only make Beeman's once a year. And however much Beeman's they make then, that's all the Beeman's there is for that year. So I actually have a little Beeman's stash. It's it's a clove flavored, right? It's like yeah. it's got this kind of, and then there was Beeman's, and then there was blackjack, which was the licorice yes. flavored gum, right? Uh-huh. Well, that was nasty. That now that was that nasty. That was that was nasty. A gum, a gum that I that I like is tea berry, and I don't know if they Ooh. make that anymore either. That was good um, stuff, Tea Berry. I recommend. I remember that. Well, the, the reason I buy so much Beeman's, and it's not really a, a huge a need anymore. And I'm not a doctor, and I have no scientific proof for what I'm about to say. But in our family, Beeman's uh, has the. Uh, if you are car sick, if you are a little bit nauseated. Um, I would always, t- whenever I took a trip with the kids in the car, I would always make sure I had Beeman's. And if they started to get a little bit queasy, they would start chewing Beeman's, and it would it would derail the nausea. And so we yeah. never went anywhere without Beeman's. Well, it has it has uh, pepsin in it. I think it's not what they advertised, and it's supposed, it was one of those those gums that was advertised as a digestive aid. So I'm not sure your family's so far off. Yeah, it was, it was, it really, it really worked. I mean, maybe, who knows, maybe there was a lot of it was the placebo effect, but I'm telling you, I raised two kids who were car sick, uh, if they were in the car for any length of time. And the only reason we ever were able to visit family in Ohio was because of Beeman's. Yeah, it's a, it's a. I, I like the flavor of some of those old those old gums, but Beeman's would hang on to its flavor. Fruit, the fruit stripe gum was just it was a joke. Yeah. Uh, and and um, and I'm I'm glad to see it go. So. <laughs> and I loved in the Picayune Sentinel. Where did you get that clip from Family Guy about fruit stripe gum? Where did you find that? Oh, you know, it's one of those things where when I. I do a deep dive into something. I spent about an hour yesterday researching fruit striped gum, reading everything. I, but one of the things I had a little trouble finding the original five flavors because they were saying that the, the flavor. The, some of the stories I was reading were were saying that that uh, um, that uh, you had. I think it was called uh, wild melon or something, hmm. uh, and peach were original flavors, and I knew that wasn't true. So I was on a mission to find out what the uh, what the actual flavors were, and, and ended up finding this clip from Family Guy, which uh, which uh, Peter says something like, "You're as disappointing as fruit striped gum," which <laughs> <laughs> is so uh, so apt. That kind of research really- is why we read the Picayune oh, yeah. Sentinel. Well, 
I tell you, the, the total value, given that it's free, uh, the, the uh, value added is pretty uh, easy to come by. But the the news today that I was really uh, pleased to pass along was that startling news, which is that frosted Pop-Tarts have fewer calories than unfrosted Pop-Tarts. What? This goes against everything. This goes against that everything that right. I was brought up to believe. No, it's true. <laughs> and uh, yeah, this is this is what the, the fine research department here at the Picky and Sentinel discovered. And uh, you know, <laughs> I have been. The thing is, I've been. I have pop tarts in my car. I, we, I call them my emergency pop tarts because uh, if I'm you know some. I'm getting hungry and, and uh, uh, just have them in the, in, the, uh, in the little console between the seats. Uh, and I, for years, I've had the unfrosted Pop-Tarts because I thought, well, they're a little healthier for you, a little, you know, a little less sugar, a little less fewer calories and so on. I mean, Pop-Tarts are Pop-Tarts. It's not, gonna, it's not exactly health food. But, and, and then I, I, I did a little bit of looking on the labels and realized that they had more calories. And then I, then I did some research and found some articles about this. That, uh, and and it's, stri- it's striking to me. And how now is I that possible? Pop-Tarts. Did your article well, explain the, how it comes to be? Yes, it did. And, it's, and this is the, the mystery was that they make, because the frosted Pop-Tarts have sort of a, a particular substance to them, particular thickness, to make the unfrosted Pop-Tarts have the same sort of heft and the same sort of weight, they, they make, there's more crust. And so they're thicker. And I guess there are more calories in that, in that thick pie crust than there are in that frosting. That frosting is probably, I don't know, aspartame or something. But uh, yeah, it's, it was unbelievable to me. And this is, like I said, this is what readers come to the Picky and Sentinel for. They, they look for look for goofy tweets and weird clips. And, uh, and, uh, and then occasionally I make some commentary on the news. So, mm. Well, you know, uh, Pop-Tarts is one of the foods that uh, I I had to cut out of my diet when years ago when I when I went gluten free and there don't call in because yes I know there are gluten free pop tarts whenever I see them I buy them but honey they ain't pop tarts they oh may God, look like pop tarts but trust me they do not taste like Pop-Tarts. You have to kind of close your eyes and, and click your heels together like Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz. They will be Pop-Tarts. They will be Pop-Tarts. They will be Pop-Tarts, but they don't. That doesn't work. <laughs> There's no taste like Pop-Tarts. There's no taste like Pop-Tarts. There you go. Yeah, no, I, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't, I mean, I think once you've gone gluten-free, I think those are things, that's probably one of the things you just need to give up. You're not going to have that, you're going to have that Pop-Tart feeling. <laughs> I know people who, I know people who are vegetarians who don't, uh, who will not eat, um, you know, Impossible Burgers or Beyond Burgers? Because the idea of eating eating something that is meat-like is is distasteful to them, which I think is interesting. But it's like once you've sworn off meat, you get sort of a uh, you you lose that craving for meat, or you lose the taste for it. So you don't even want you don't even want fake meat. It's, it, it even goes beyond philosophy to the fact that you just don't, you don't like the taste anymore. You're, you're yeah. rejecting it. So I think you're going to have to do that with Pop-Tarts, Jen. Well, I don't know that I can, Eric. I will, you know, I don't know. When I see the gluten-free, I'm thinking, I think to myself, you know, those taste terrible. You know, those taste terrible. And then there's the other part of my brain is going, yeah, but you know, you're going to buy them anyway. You know, you're going to buy them anyway. So there's sometimes there's just no there's no hope for me. Um, We need to take a break. And when we come back, I 
found uh, today's Picayune Sentinel article about Phil Largo to be really, really interesting. Again, Eric Zorn digging this stuff up for you and me. We're going to take a break. We're going to be back with him right after this. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. As you were perusing the Picayune Sentinel today, you probably were stopped short by what appears to be a cover of a pulp novel from like the 50s. And it is the artwork of a man who calls himself, when he does this work, Phil Largo. And Eric uh, talked to him and uh, got his story. And it is, it's the kind of thing you're not going to see anywhere else but the Picayune Sentinel. And it is fascinating, Eric. Tell us about Phil, what, how, would, how does he say his real name? Gullet? Well, yeah, Phil Gullet is his, is his real name, and he lives in the suburbs here. He didn't want to say which suburb, I'm not sure why, but he's a professional graphic artist and an animator. And he, uh, he, he makes these book covers that look absolutely real. Uh, and I, I, I stumbled on it when I, I saw this the thing he did about uh, it, was, it looked like a book of funeral songs that, that he had. And they were, they were like uh, extremely amusing uh, titles to, to these songs uh, that you're supposed to play at funerals. Like, uh, um, uh, what's it? I'm trying to remember what some of them were. Um, uh, oh gosh, like, Who Gets What? And Grandma Had Secrets. And, <laughs> and this changes nothing. And it looks just like it. It's called Easy Funeral Songs. The big book of easy funeral songs, and he has this it, it really, really good um, where, he, where he will he will take these old you know those old paperback books that you have and um, and, and do them up just right. And so it's, it's Phil R. Go at blogspot blogspot dot com, and I've got the address and the uh, the details about him in the um, in the settlement. But he's uh, he just decided that he would use these old magazines and old books as as uh, prototypes for these these jokes that he does and they're really convincing and he says that, that a lot of these ads that he does people think this is actually a Sears ad and he's got one that's got pants that come up to your your chest and uh, he, people are fooled into thinking that these are actual ads from you know actual vintage ads so so it's, it's really a lot of fun and I'm going to be featuring his work I think uh, fairly often now I, I do this thing every week where I do um, funny visual jokes that I find online and I have readers vote on them and and uh, I'm just thrilled that I found this trove of, of uh, amusement. So, so uh, yeah. So it's, it's, where do where do people things. find this? Do you have, they have to go to his web spot website? I mean, that's not like yeah, this. Well, this I, stuff I, isn't I, for sale, right? I don't think it is. I, I mean, I think you just go and you look at it and you're amused by it. Uh, it's uh, Phil hyphen R A R E hyphen go dot blogspot dot com. It's it's a, you can link to it and look at some of the stuff in the Picayune Sentinel today. And that's just uh you know Eric Zorn dot substack dot com. And um you know it, it's just one of the little things that uh that I found this week that uh that, that are good. But uh you know I also I also wanted to talk a little bit, you know, in the in the newsletter this week about the story from Channel Eleven. Did you have you follow that at oh all? Oh my God, the, uh, yes. The Freedom of Information Act Oh yeah, 
Well, what? I mean, just, you know, to summarize for anyone, just, just, you know, just paying attention is that Channel 11 did the Freedom of Information Act request for the city about the death of that five-year-old boy at the migrant shelter. And they got back like six pages of things that were just totally redacted. And, you know, our, the idea that we had was that, you know, Mayor Johnson was going to be this transparent mayor. He was going to be someone who was, you know, was going to be collaborative and work with the people. And and his the fact that they man, they took and they blacked out this entire thing, which which revealed that they knew about the, uh, you know, the, the insufficient bathrooms, the exposed pipes, the raw sewage, the cockroach, cockroach infestation and so on uh, at this shelter, that they knew about it. Uh, and since TTW then got a, got a hold of another copy of it from a different organization, they had gotten an, an unredacted file. And it was extremely disappointing to me, not just that the city didn't act more quickly on the health conditions at the shelter. And we don't know uh, whether that contributed to the boy's death or not. I mean, it might, you know, we just they haven't the autopsy's not back on that. But we do know that the city was trying to hide this from the, the journalists that, that uh, you know, Mayor Johnson's administration was was not being transparent. And this is a, a problem that we've had in Chicago for generations. He's not the first secretive mayor. Mayor Lightfoot was secretive. Mayor Emanuel was secretive. We were sort of hoping for a little bit better with Mayor Johnson. And yeah. we we're just seeing the same, the same, the same old stuff. And that was my, my my main response to that, which was like, yeah, the, you know, not responding to this health crisis. And they said they did. They they said that they did look into it. But um, so we don't know about that. But just their their impulse, their instinct seems to be not to be communicative. And I really think that that Mayor Johnson's got a problem with communications. He doesn't have uh, official spokesmen. He has he he doesn't have good messaging. He's not out with reporters as much as he should be. And and he needs to get a really top-notch professional communications team to help him get his message out, to help him make sure that he's saying the right things and, and getting people the information they need and um, and not messing up like this, because this is, this is a, a problem. And, and you know, I like and to- I know, and everybody who lives in Chicago knows the cover-up is almost always worse than the crime. You know, okay, if these emails had had come to light, you know, yes, we moved on this, maybe not as fast as we could have, but we're committed to doing better. Even after, let's say, let's say he didn't know, let's say somebody in his administration took it upon themselves to redact this. Again, once it became public, he should have been out there saying, you know what, this is not who we are. This isn't going to happen like this again. The person who did this has been chastised and told this is not who we are. And I promise you, we will be doing better going forward. Bing, bang, boom. Lori yeah, Lightfoot never understood that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's clearly the way you have to handle these situations. You need someone in your organization who is not a yes person, but who is totally on your side, who is going to say, look, Mayor, this is a problem. This is how we need to address it. Someone who knows how the media works, who doesn't hate the media, uh, but who uh, who knows how to engage with reporters, give them what they need, and give it to them in a timely fashion. The fact that there are you know, health problems, sanitary problems at these shelters is no surprise to anybody. It should be no surprise to the mayor. I think the mayor has got a really huge problem on his hands with this migrant situation. And, uh, you know, I'm, not, I'm hardly the first person to say that. And I think the public is understanding and forgiving if they believe that he is 
at least as on top of it as he can be. But there's this this defensiveness that kicks in. And like I said, that, that to me was the, the, the big story here was not necessarily the health situation at the, at the shelters, because that's going to be inevitable when you've got all these people coming up here and you don't have really places to put them and you're just shoving them wherever you can to try to keep them warm and try to keep them safe. You're going to have these problems. The question is, are you on top of that? And are you being honest with the public about what's going on? And those are the things that, that uh, I mean, and they had the same problem with the, with the tent city that they were going to build, right? There was just the communication mm-hmm. was really, really poor. And, and that's just, that's a problem for an administration. And, and, you know, I, I have, I believe that it's too early to judge Mayor Johnson as a failure or, or as, as unready for the job. I, I don't think that he was ready to be mayor. I think that he can grow into the job. I'm not ready to give up on him by any means. He's got uh, three more years, more than three years, to to right the ship and get his feet right on this. And I, and I hope that he will. But I think he needs to realize what the problems are. And one of them is, is just plain old communication. It's, it's, uh, it's not being defensive about everything. It's realizing that people understand that there are problems. I remember Mayor Lightfoot had a pretty good run there when early on when she was the face of uh, COVID yes. protection, right? She was like, you know, the, the cutouts of Mayor Lightfoot and, and you know, you get home and you get off that basketball court. People were like, yeah, this is a really bad situation, but the mayor is doing her best and we can, we can respect that. And I, and I believe we can do that with Mayor Johnson to realize that this is an unprecedented problem that we've got. And I heard you talking earlier to Tony about, uh, about, you know, the, the human trafficking mayor, uh, governor Abbott sending all these people up here to Chicago to put a thumb in our eye. Uh, and, and what are we going to do about it? It's costing us millions of dollars to try to address this problem. It is, it is a really difficult problem. And, you know, you've got a mayor who's got a progressive agenda and he can't do much because he's got to spend all his money dealing with this problem. I think we all understand that. And we all understand that he's not going to be able to get done what he wants to get done necessarily or as fast as he wants to get it done, because this is this is a problem that although you know, you could see it coming last year, it was still it's, it's been dumped on his lap. But he's he's going to have to sort of bring us all into the, the fight together. And, to, and I think we will understand. Yeah. And I agree with you. I think that it's early days, but I'm a little concerned that when there is a bump in the road, he doesn't seem to learn from it, at least not so far. I mean, your, you, your report that the administration, after TTW made this big report and they had the, the emails um, unredacted, then the city released unredacted emails. And there had to have been a behind-the-scenes conversation. The city didn't have to do that at that point. They were clearly trying to a make up for a bad situation. But where was the public statement? There was, you know what? Um, we had bad communication. We've fixed it. It's going to be better going forward. That's what worries me is uh, we don't see we don't see any change. Eric, we are out of time. That music that uh, Alex is playing, it means that we are up against it. Uh, thank you for being here. Always a pleasure to read the Picayune Sentinel and talk to you about it. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate it. Um, That is going to do it for me. Drive it at home with Perry Vasquez is next. I will see you tomorrow at 2 o'clock. Stay safe, my friends. Good night.